Okay, good evening, everybody. Welcome. Welcome back to Exploring the Lord of the Rings. This is session number 79 tonight. Uh, and as we continue to inch our way ever so slowly past the attack under Weathertop, what we've learned, I think, in the attack under Weathertop has been worth our slow pace. I have uh, found it extremely revealing. Uh, and in fact, tonight we're going to be starting off with another one of those passages that, you know, I go through, I, you know, looking at it in this context, you know, kind of going through paragraph by paragraph, I'm like, did I ever even notice that before? Like, is that a paragraph I've even read before? It's just, anyway, we'll get there in a second. But anyhow, um, thanks very much for joining me tonight. Uh, I wanted to just start off by saying uh, thanks to everybody who uh, who has helped and supported us through our fundraising campaign. Uh, we had a wonderfully successful campaign uh, this year. Uh, there's still time. If you haven't had a chance to donate yet, you can still do that, of course. Uh, our annual fund is called that for a reason. It's open year-round, uh, but I promise I won't be uh, pestering you about that uh, anymore. Our fundraising campaign is done. So again, thanks everybody who uh, uh, who participated in that, and uh, for, for those of you who attended the webathon, that was uh, that was really fun. Um, anyway. Um, Two quick announcements just uh, before we go. I just wanted to uh, do a couple moot announcements. Uh, first, I wanted to emphasize we have two moots that are coming up very soon, including one which is under two weeks away now, and that is L.A. moot. So you Southern California people um, uh, uh, need to come out and, uh, and, and and sign up for that. I'm really looking forward to being out there. It's going to be really cool. We have um, um, we're, we're doing a the theme of the the uh the uh the moot is adaptation so we're looking at different sort of thinking about different theories of adaptation challenges to adaptation approaches to adaptation uh dave kale and i'll both be there trish couldn't sadly be there in person but dave and i'll be there and we'll talk about film film some and uh the uh i'm going to be giving a talk as well on adaptation thinking about sort of uh, tolkien's approach to adaptation uh and um, we're going to have a couple panels, uh, 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 some uh, uh, folks from the One Ring.net who are coming out to, to uh, think about adaptation and think about, sort of reflect back on Peter Jackson's adaptations, which should be fun. Um, anyway, lots of uh, lots of really cool stuff going on at LA Moot. So I hope you guys will uh, will be able to join us there in a week and a half. We had a whole bunch of signups here in the last couple of days. So I'm glad to see the Southern California people coming out and I uh, hope you can uh, hope you can join us there. Um Second uh, is Magnolia Moot, and that one is coming up two weeks later. So LA Moot, October 27th, Magnolia Moot, November 10th, Saturday, November 10th. That's in Charlotte, North Carolina. So I do hope uh, that anybody down there in the South, we're, we're uh, uh, you know, we'd uh, love to, to see as many people as we can uh, from the the broader region down there, uh, come out and join us for the day. That's going to be at Johnson C. Smith university in Charlotte, North Carolina. And, uh, it's going to be, uh, it's going to be pretty cool. So anyway, um, that's, uh, Oh, cool. Matt, your research assistant's going to be presenting a Magnolia moot. That's great. That's great. Um, so, uh, yeah. Anyway, so that's going to be really fun. So I hope that you will, uh, again, go to signumuniversity.org uh, slash events and you can see all of those upcoming events and uh, that will have also the registration links and stuff. Um, and uh, what was the other thing I was going to say about that? Oh, yeah. And of course, for uh, LA Moot also has its own web page at lamoot.org. Uh, now, the... Um, 
Other thing, of course, I announced on Saturday uh, on the Webathon uh, during the Webathon um, that we, ha we we announced four new moots that are coming up uh, that will be happening in 2019. In addition, of course, to Text Moot, which is happening in January and that's already scheduled and indeed open for registration, um, we also have four more moots, uh, new ones that we're planning on starting, and they are going to be in Orlando Moot. I still like uh, I still like Gator Moot. Uh, as a as a as a as a name that's still in my in my we were talking about names people were suggesting names at the webathon gator moot still top of my personal list and then uh second as so uh, we have orlando gator moot we have new england uh we're going to be in uh in amherst massachusetts still not sure the exact time gator moot is going to be sometime either february or march um Oh, Matt, that research assistant is going to be presenting. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Uh, very cool. Your daughter, that is, she's, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I didn't realize your permanent research assistant. Yeah, of course, I've, I've met her and seen her work many times. Uh, so that's great. Awesome. Awesome. Um, what's she presenting on, Matt? Um, anyway, okay. So you think Gator will get me sued too? Oh, come on now. <laughs> they can't possibly, they can't possibly prevent people from, uh, from using the term Gator, can they? Uh, <laughs> anyway, um, so, uh, uh, any, anyhow, anyhow, my, my, my biggest fear of that, I'm like, are we going to offend Florida State alums or something if we call it, you know, Gator Moot? I don't want to seem, you know, prejudiced or anything. Uh, anyway, New England. We're going to be doing New England either late in the spring or early in the fall, uh, one or the other. And uh, then third, uh, we have two. Those, those two are going to be really great. And we also have two international moots uh, that we're going to be uh, that we're going to be uh, starting up. And that is uh, in the Netherlands. We're doing Nader moot, uh, probably April or May uh, date as yet unconfirmed there. Um, but um, but anyway, yeah, yeah. So we're going to be going to the Netherlands. And that is essentially the um, um, the the. <sighs> partner uh uh corresponding anyway it's uh parallel to london moot so remember we did london moot last year in april um right now the rough plan is to kind of alternate between the uk and the continent essentially so we did the uk last year we'll do down on the continent this year and then uh uh maybe back to you the to the uk next year that's the rough approximate plan for that. Um, and then our fourth and very exciting uh, one was Kiwi Moot. We're going to New Zealand. Uh, so we're having Kiwi Moot. Uh, the current plan, plan A, I should say, again, not totally confirmed, but plan A uh, for Kiwi Moot uh, is going to be in November of uh, 2019. Um, uh, near the end of uh, November 2019. So uh, Thanksgiving week uh, in America. The idea was to uh, do it on a, a holiday, which is not a holiday locally in uh, New Zealand and Australia, so it won't be a conflict for anybody down there. But the days off in America gives Americans a fighting shot of being able to travel down there if they want to do it. So anyway, that's the that's it might not work out, but uh, that is that date might not work out. But it's definitely happening. If it doesn't happen then, it'll probably happen in uh, like January, February uh, of uh, 2020. So. In any case, uh, oh, what's the likelihood, likelihood of it happening again? If you can't make it to Kiwi Moot next year, oh, pretty good, I think. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, pretty, the, you know, the one thing I could imagine 
you know, kind of like there's there's several of our regional moots that are kind of traveling a little bit, right? I mean, like we we're doing that even in a small way with Middle Moot, which I was just at in Kansas City. Um, that was the one, the same one that was in Iowa last year. So we're kind of moving back and forth between Iowa and Kansas City, kind of moving up and down and catching like the being able to reach the, the more northerly people and more southerly people um, every other year. Same thing that we're doing with uh, the UK and uh, Europe. Uh, so that, uh, again, we can kind of rotate back and forth to kind of keep from being too much of too heavy of a burden on any of our one local organizers, um, but also to kind of spread things out a little bit. Maybe, who knows, maybe we'll do something like New Zealand, Australia um, for similar reasons, right, to kind of uh, kind of go back and forth and spread that out a little bit. But in any case, JJ, is it going to happen again? Yeah, I don't think this will be our only Kiwi moot. Um, so, yeah, definitely. Um, cool. So anyhow, that's uh, that. Those are the moot plans for the coming year. In addition, of course, to continuing to repeat our other uh, moots as well. We plan to do. We'll, we'll be going back to L.A. We'll be going back to the San Francisco Bay Area. We'll be going back to uh, Middle Moot again, as I mentioned. So um, anyway, Matt Violinus says, "How does one lobby for a destination?" Well, send us an email. Well, I, I would say um, if you. Uh, if you're interested in helping to organize uh, a moot, send us an email at info at signumu.org uh, and we'll we'll definitely we'll definitely see. Uh, Belongsman says donate. Also not a bad idea. Um, but um, but yeah, yeah, no, that, that would be um, that would be a good a good way. Evil Dr. Cannon, see Mickey moot is a is a suggestion, right? Uh, that many people have made. And of course, I, I, the, the only reason it, I, I'm tempted by it is like in hopes that Disney will sue us. And then, you know, we'll have 400 people at Mickey Moot next year. <laughs> but apart from that, I don't, you know, I, I, I don't know. I don't know. Um, Marianne, you mentioned the Pacific Northwest. That is on my uh, my Moot wish list. It really is. Um, uh, I've been, th- I'm thinking about Seattle. Seattle is uh, uh, on my short list of moots. I really want to say, like, I've got a couple places uh, that are really on my short list. Uh, Seattle is one. Uh, Toronto is another. I really want to get something up in Canada. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah, um, that's, that's, uh, yeah, good. Um, oh, I Darren, yeah, the Morgan exhibit. So I'll have something to announce about that later on. We're doing a kind of a halfway, partly, partly thing with uh, the Morgan. That's been hard to organize, but we're we're working on something there. Um, anyway, yeah, Seattle, Toronto, I'd love to do something also more in the north. We're thinking about maybe Ohio, like in that area, uh, to kind of get that uh, sort of north central uh, uh, part of the you know, eastern half of the United States. We're kind of, it's kind of a gap in our moot structure right now um so uh anyway anyway that's uh, um that's the that's the plan oregon see oregon would be attractive like i would love to go to oregon um but seattle's kind of cool because then we can it, we could uh not only for seattle people but people can come up from oregon and come down from uh vancouver as well so uh it's uh, seattle's kind of nicely uh uh, central in that way. Anyhow. All right. I know Lady Shmebulak, it's, uh, uh, it would be fun. It would be fun to have more people join me on the moot tour, right? Going all over the place. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, 
Yeah, cool. All right. Hey, let's get started. But anyway, so those are my moot announcements. Don't forget, LA moot coming up soon. So if you're in Southern California, uh, no excuse. Okay, well, there are some reasonable excuses, but make sure you come October 27th. Um, okay, let us begin. Um, so I want to begin with, with, this is going to shock you, right? Prepare to be shocked, because the first thing I want to do tonight is I want to go back and talk more about the attack on Weathertop. Well, not really. Yes, actually. But it's, uh, I, I, I keep getting discussion board questions about this, and I definitely got the feeling that there was still some, um, some unrest about one of the points here. And so I was really glad that, uh, uh, that our friend Old Tolkien fan uh, uh, raised this. Uh, so we're uh, we're moving forward, right? We got We got to get past this. Uh, it, it really is an interesting spot, right, for Strider, um, as you know they're recovering, and it's like, okay, so step one, everybody lived, right? Great. The ring rates did not. They took neither Frodo nor the ring, right? So Frodo's here, still has the ring. He's alive. So this is a win, right? And they've left, and they seem to have run away. And okay, so. We're doing really well on the one hand, right? On the other hand, it's still a long old walk to uh, Rivendell and they know where we are and they're on our trail. How are we possibly going to survive for several weeks with the Nazgul hovering around here, right? Uh, And uh, Frodo injured. So, um, you know, this is, uh, you can see how this difficult moment of trying to move past this, um, yeah. Cool. All right. On to old Tolkien fans question. He quotes at the beginning It's too long to include it, but he quotes at the beginning. Now this is slightly cheating, but I thought I would allow it in this case. Um, he quotes Gandalf's uh, analysis, right? When he says, uh, you know, you've been wounded by a Morgul knife, um, which remains in the wound. Right now, on the one hand, that's a kind of an easy thing to say when they've just removed a piece of the Morkel knife that was in the wound. Right on the one hand, it's not like necessarily he's saying, "Oh yeah, there's a subset of Morgul knives." You know, the Morgul knives which remain in the wound. Right, like they just healed him of because and some part of the knife was in the wound. So like calling it a Morgul knife that remains in the wound is just kind of a description of what did happen. In fact, right. Uh, not necessarily, I think an indicator of like, this is how always they work. Um, but actually I'm not necessarily opposed to that. Anyway, nevertheless that, so he quotes Gandalf saying that and then says, if we take Gandalf's answer at face value, having the knife's tip break off and remain in the wound was integral to what the witch King was trying to do. It was not the accidental result of a botched attack. Perhaps remaining in the wound was necessary for Frodo to be wraithified, as opposed to merely being killed by a knife stroke to the heart. What went awry was that due to Frodo's resistance, the Witch King's attack pierced the shoulder instead of the chest. Given Gandalf's explanation, I've always assumed that the notch in the blade was already built into the edge of the knife. It provides the weak point in the blade where the tip is supposed to break off when the knife is used, and where I assume the tip did break off as planned. Once the blade was broken off at the notch and left in the wound, the knife's evil payload would have been delivered and the knife's magic expended. By the way, that I really like that phrase, evil payload, right? I, I've delivered my payload of evil, right? That's, 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 that's something about that phrase really just kind of delighted me. Um, and the knife's magic expended, which is why the Witch King dropped the knife instead of repeatedly hacking at Frodo with the broken blade. 
<laughs> okay, there was nothing for him to do at that point but depart. They, I have also always assumed that to facilitate its breaking, the knife was a thin double-edged stiletto with the physical properties, to the extent that a blade of condensed black magic has physical properties, of a brittle black obsidian glass dagger, not of a tough steel knife that would be unlikely to break even when notched, even if it hit bone. Okay, great. So, I think that there's... Uh, I think that there's uh, a lot of good stuff here. So there are a couple things that I would that I would say. Uh, and so there are some things that I disagree with here, though I, I, I know a lot of things that I really like. In particular, I agree that my favorite part of this comment is the bit about the uh, the obsidian instead of steel. That's really good. I mean, we see it sort of glowing, right? So we don't even really get any sense of like, is it, does it look like steel that's glowing or whatever? But that idea of this looking like um, being shaped like an obsidian knife, like I can totally get behind obs- obsidian stiletto, right? As the, which is a little bit unusual, frankly. But anyway, obsidian stiletto as like the general shape and, and nature of the, of the, of the knife blade um, while it's, you know, corporeal and before it fades into mist. Um, so yeah, th- that actually, I, I really, um, I really liked back to Gandalf's quote here. Um, so <laughs> Boomful thinks that evil payload would be another good band name. Yeah, actually it's not too bad. You can see like a death metal band named evil payload, I, I suppose. Uh, anyway, um, so, um, <laughs> Evil Dr. Cannon says the Witch King and Aragorn should have battled each other with broken blades. Um, <laughs> yeah, Obsidian Stiletto would be the opening act, clearly, for Evil Payload, right? No question. Um, oh, you were thinking of Obsidian Stiletto, too? Yeah, okay. All right. All right. I don't know. Evil Payload is... <laughs> I think it's an even better band name, frankly, but I like Obsidian Stiletto. That works. That works. You think that Evil Payload would be the opening band? Oh, I don't, I don't know. I don't really, I don't, I don't really, I don't really know about that. But anyway, okay, okay. Um, point is, uh, back to Gandalf's quote. So again, when, when he, uh, when Gandalf is, says that this was a Morgul uh, knife which remained in the wound. Again, he's just describing what did in fact happen, right? So, does this does Gandalf's statement? Again, describing what did happen. Does Gandalf's statement suggest that in order for Frodo to be wraithified, a piece of the blade would have to remain within Frodo's person, right? So if if a, a, a piece of that blade right enters Frodo's heart and remains in Frodo's heart, then he's wraithified. So like the, the breaking off is requisite, right? Okay, so does that mean that? I'm not really sure that that means that. Right. I can see it a couple. Um, I can see it moving a couple directions. Right. Uh, well, towards the heart, mostly. No, just kidding. But um, I don't think that it doesn't seem to me a necessary interpretation, like a, a, an inescapable interpretation of Gandalf's words there. Again, it did remain in the wound and it was working towards the heart. Does that pr- prove that a sliver of the knife must be in the heart in order for Frodo to be subjugated as a wraith? No, not to me necessarily. Like, if the knife had entered the heart in- initially, would it have had to break off in order to work? 
would it have done? I mean, it, it could do so again. You can imagine that, right? You can imagine that even if he stabs him in, the tip breaks off and the tip remains straight in the heart, right? Direct delivery to the heart, instant wraithification, game over, right? But for all we know, the mere like stabbing, you know, uh, puncturing of the heart of Frodo with the blade might have might be enough to do it. Right. Um, Which, of course, would be done directly without any need for any shards. Right. If he had stabbed him straight in the heart. But given that he was stabbed in the shoulder, it required a sliver to go all the way and burrow in towards his heart uh, in order to um, in order to make that happen. So. Frankly, I can see either one of those things being true. I kind of I kind of like the idea of the sort of a shard of the of the blade remaining in his heart no matter what. I mean, I find that a kind of appealing. I, again, I don't find it in a, in, inevitable, but I find that kind of appealing. I mean, not like personally, um, but, you know, sort of symbolically, because remember, remember that um, it. <laughs> As far as we can see, and as old Tolkien fan even acknowledges there in that last sentence, that the blade, as far as we can tell, is like condensed black magic, right? Um, it seems to be the concentrated will of the Ringwraith, which is why it dissolves. Um, I don't think that either an obsidian blade or a steel blade or any other kind of blade is just going to melt away like that um, when the sun comes out. Right. I think that that it just and especially, again, the way that the hand was glowing as well as the blade suggests that it is the power of the Witch King that was working through this knife and that the knife is therefore in its sense, in it, in, in itself, in a sense, just an extension of his will. That's why I like it. The reading, right, that a shard stays in the heart. Right. Because then a shard of the blade would be a like a, an infiltrated piece of the will of the Witch King lodged, skewering Frodo's heart, either immediately, right, or eventually, one way or the other. Um, the breaking off and the worming its way across from the shoulder seems to be something like a failsafe, and also to fit with the nature of the blade as an extension of the Witch King's will, right? Just because the Witch King missed, thanks to Frodo's brave dive forwards, um, and hit him in the shoulder instead of the chest doesn't mean that his will is going to cease to work. Um, his will is going to continue to work. And again, I see the, um, the, the chip, right? The, 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 the shard of the blade working its way through towards Frodo's heart as being again, essentially just sort of a way, like a physical, outward representation of what we're so like Frodo is coming more and more under the spell um, of the, of the witch King, right? Uh, we've, we saw him, we saw the witch King compelling Frodo with his will, right? With the putting on of the ring. Um, and here, like the, the, the ultimate compulsion. And again, you think about the, don't think about, I think it's more important not to think about it physiologically, but to think about it spiritually, right? Remember, this is a spiritual battle from the beginning, right? This is a battle for Frodo's heart, right? And the Witch King can only fully subdue his heart if he pierces his heart with, if he, the Witch King, be careful my pronouns, if the Witch King pierces Frodo's heart with his own will, right? Uh, thereby, you know, killing him, right? Slaying his own will and subjugating him, um, subjugating Frodo to the Witch King's will. 
Um, so do I think that the Witch King's weapon, which remember, again, I'm not convinced is a real weapon in the sense of having a blade that was chipped or forged by anybody, um, is, is the Witch King's, uh, so the breaking off of the, of the, the, the shard or the sliver of it, uh, when he first stabbed Proto in the shoulder, this seems to me something like a failsafe, right? Um, that is, again, it's a vehicle for his own will. It's doesn't, in that sense, it doesn't really matter whether he hits or misses. It does matter uh, because it will like vary the directness of the strike, right? But, you know, even if he just stabs you in the foot with his Morgul blade, he can still work through that, right? That's why this kind of wound from this kind of weapon, as Strider says right away, is like, I don't know what I can do against this kind of wound, right? Um, uh, so I definitely think that, again, what's important here is the spiritual conflict, right? Is the will of the Witch King working? And I kind of suspect that the Witch King has to be rather actively working at this. Um, not sure that that, sliver of blade in Frodo's shoulder has a will totally of its own, right? And is just like, you know, homing its way towards his heart by some independent, you know, motivation, right? Um, you know, as the product of some spell uh, that the previously cast by the Witch King. I, again, I'm not really convinced that that's how that that's how that that works. Um, but um, anyway, uh Given that I'm not convinced of the full reality of the blade necessarily, again, I'm not, I'm not a hundred, I'm not a hundred percent convinced that it's not either, but I lean in that way. I mean, I would, I would say I'm about, uh, I'm about 70, 30 towards it, not being a real blade towards it being a manifestation of the will of the witch King. Um, in which case I don't think that the notching has anything to do with the tip breaking off. Um, because, First of all, I'm not even sure that tip breaking off fits the description. Doesn't Gandalf call it a sliver? Anyway, but it doesn't really matter all that much. Um, if we're thinking about that, like, you know, it's not so that the tip can break off. Um, I definitely, that seems to me a little too mechanical, right? Again, it's just, it's not, it's not like you have to rig the thing physically. Uh, that's not, that wouldn't be how it would work. The breaking off of it, if it is an extension of the will of the Witch King, it's remaining in the wound means the Witch King's, you know, force and energy remains th working through that wound to try to continue, or rather to continue trying to conquer the will of the victim, right? So I don't think we have to think about it in those physiological ways. Um, and the second thing, that, the second reason I'm skeptical, particularly about the notch thing, is yeah, trifle. I was pretty sure splinter was the word that Gandalf used, um, which, by the way, was another reason that I liked the obsidian suggestion. Um, but anyhow, um, the although yeah, mad violence has to be melted, right? So it um, pretty challenging to melt obsidian. But anyway, um, what was I saying? Uh, sliver, uh, notch. Right. That's the other thing. Um, I would, 
I would encourage somebody else to look this up. Look this up if you have time. You could probably do it during class here tonight. Um, look up the time the word notch, some any form of the word notch is used, especially as a verb or participle related to weapons, because it happens. Um, you know, his blade was notched. Uh, that's a, that's a that's a that's a phrase. Tolkien uses that. I'm pretty sure multiple times and every t- I'm, I'm going to say on my, based on my memory, every time Tolkien uses the word notched to describe a weapon, it describes damage done to the weapon. Um, exactly. Gimli's axe is notched in Helm's Deep. Alas, my axe is notched uh, for the, uh, the 42nd war and iron collar around his neck. Right. Um, yeah, Exactly. Exactly. The sword, I believe, also of uh, of Balder um, uh, in uh, The Path of the Dead is notched, right? And by him lay a notched sword. Um, Boromir's sword gets notched. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah, so um, I don't um, I don't think that uh, so when he, when he says that the, this, the, the blade is notched I don't think there's any precedent for Tolkien using that word to describe like a design feature in a blade. It almost always describes damage to a blade. Um, now, Karita, I agree. If I were spiritually manifesting a knife, I feel like I'd want it to be perfect, not notched. Agreed. The notch, I wonder, does that suggest damage to the blade? Right? That it, it, even if it's a spiritual blade, it would have received spiritual damage from that conflict, right? In fact, Honestly, I can't think of where exactly when we were talking about it. Is it because it hit bone? Uh, maybe like the shoulder blade could have notched it, but I'm not really sure. Um, I, again, I don't I don't. I, the only thing that seems to notch uh, when uh, other notched blades are when you do things like use them on a stone door like Balder or hit him, hit an iron collar like Gimli or uh, um, or what was the other one? Oh, yeah. Uh, hit a. Uh, uh, troll, right? Uh, like Boromir. Um, okay, eight times Matt. Great. All of which are uh, damaged weapons in battle. Okay, that was that. That was my memory. That, that was my memory of it. Um, uh, but um, anyway, Mad Violinist, how do we deal with the splinter? By waiting until we get there in the next chapter. That's how we're going to deal with the splinter. I'm already transgressing in bringing in Gandalf's comment, but since this, since it was directly addressing many questions that people had last time, and I still felt we were a little unsettled with that, uh, I wanted to, uh, um, I wanted to, uh, to, I was okay coming, uh, coming back to it. Anyhow, um, okay, so. So again, I I don't think I don't I don't buy the idea that it's a design part of the dagger because again I don't think it's 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 got to be designed to uh, to to break in a particular place or anything. Again, I just don't think it's that kind of weapon. Um, the what was the last thing I wanted to talk about? There was another thing. I'm not. I'm forgetting now. Oh yes, that's right. The dropping of the knife. I absolutely disagree with the dropping of the knife. Um, and the primary reason I disagree, and this I did say last time, but I want to emphasize it again: both Aragorn and Gorfindel, and presumably Elrond, are assisted in their treatment of the wound by reading the runes that are written on the hilt of the dagger. Um, in that case, the if the Witch King dropped it on purpose. You know, like a you know a, a one shot weapon that delivers its evil payload and then is done and then he drops it. Um, 
uh, then he's a fool, right? Because he is leaving something which will help them to heal the wound, um, which is dumb. Uh, Now, again, not saying that he wouldn't do a dumb thing or that a dumb thing wouldn't happen, but I can't imagine that's the plan, right? Um, So, uh, yeah, exactly. Finn, if it's a major fail, sure, that could happen, right? Um, And that's ultimately what I think did happen. What I think, I think the reason that he drops it is uh, when Frodo drops the E-bomb, right? That's when he, uh, he, and I was kind of thinking about that today. If I were doing a screen adaptation of the attack on Weathertop, I would want to represent, especially if I'm showing like Frodo's view, Frodo and the Witch King's view, so that you can see both of them, right? I would show like, you know, the Witch King stabbing down and then Frodo, you know, Frodo diving forward and Frodo getting stabbed in the shoulder out here. And then right as Frodo is stabbed, he cries out in a, in a, in a loud and clear voice, I Elbereth Gilthonio. And as soon as he I would have like a flash of white light. Uh, emerge, and like the, the, I would have the Witch King not just run, not just turn and run away. Like, ah, you know, like, like, no, that is the name that the Witch King cannot hear, right? That's not how I would handle that. I would actually have it be like a physical force that throws him away. And he screams. So he screams, like, ah, and he drops, he drops the, you know, the knife flies out of his hand and he, uh, and he, uh, uh, you know, goes, goes like screaming away, you know, and like, even, I don't know if I'd make him tumble. That'd be a little indelicate, but, um, but I would actually make him hurled out of the way. Um, Matt, maybe I'd make him hurled straight out of his cloak, right? Not, not in like a Looney Tunes way where his cloak still stays there shaped like a person and then drops to the ground. But again, just like show his cloak, his cloak ripped off of him and him flung away. You know, the, the, the shadowy witch King flung away by, by the force of it. I mean, it's a big deal. Um, uh, the 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 saying of the name of Elbereth in that instance, and again, we didn't see what it was like right before. We didn't see the kind of impact that it had. But his scream suggests to me that this is a this is a big. He's not just like nonplussed, right? He's not just discombobulated briefly. Um, this is uh, you know uh, more deadly. Deadly, remember, is the word that Aragorn used to describe the. Uh, um, to to describe the the uh, the name of Elbereth to the Witch King, right? Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, so that's that's anyway. That's how I would. That's how I would, just to try to convey that 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 that's what ended things there, right? And there's not really any question of like, man, the Witch King really fell asleep at the switch. I mean, he was standing right there. His you know, enemy was lying comatose on the ground, uh, with holding the ring in his fist. I mean, like how easy would that have been, right? Just step on his wrist with your stompy boots, which you're still presumably wearing, right? Take the ring and get, right? Again, a lot of people have that reaction to this scene, but again, that's, that's not an option. I, I, and, and it's not Aragorn with his pointy sticks, uh, that is scaring him away, uh, at that, at that point. Um, Anyway, okay. Um, so, so yeah. So I totally don't buy that he deliberately that it was a one shot blade that he then deliberately dropped because it was it was done. Um, I, I I don't. I, I definitely definitely don't buy that. I think that his dropping that was an accident. Does that mean that it is or is not a one shot blade? I don't really know. I mean, I'm. I don't think. To me, it's not necessarily that material as to whether or not he could reuse that hilt. 
right? Maybe he can, maybe he can't. Maybe that hilt is like set about with spells so that it's like, you know, a Nazgul Darksaber, you know, that he, you know, so that he, he could do that same thing again and again if he invests the same amount of power in it. Um, uh, now, it would weaken him. Right. I mean, this is something we talked about briefly last time, and we've seen this time and again uh, when, uh, uh, you know, evil uh, people sort of project their power, uh, uh, you know, outwards in that way that it tends to weaken them. Um, he's trying to capture Frodo, Irindus. Of that, I feel fairly confident that he's he's not trying to take the ring. But again, lots of people complain that he's like standing there. The ring is literally loose. Right at his feet. I mean, just held in Frodo's hand at that point, uh, in the in the hand of an unconscious person. Uh, why didn't you know? And, and he did, couldn't be bothered to stoop down and pick it up again. I, I've heard that objection so many times uh, to this passage. That's why I emphasize that Irindus. But no, I totally think his plan is to take Frodo, not the ring. Um. Anyhow, okay. Um. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For Thomas, it's interesting to wonder if he would have been capable of taking the ring for himself if he were capable of Thalus, as you say, is he capable of, of that kind of an act of will because his own will is so enslaved by Sauron. Could he do that? Um, uh, or is it just that he's been forbidden to right by his master because Sauron doesn't want any part of that. Um, you know, that's the last thing he needs is that kind of personnel issue, right? Have the witch King claim the ring for himself. Right. It gets all kinds of messy at that point. Um, so, Anyway, um, yeah, Arden Crayon, an, an excellent question, right? And again, people have asked me that, right? He could, as Arden Crayon says, he's carrying a sword in his other hand, right? Why don't you just chop off Frodo's hand and take the hand, right? Exactly. No, that's exactly the kind of thing that people ask. But again, my, my answer to that is he is not in a chopping, stomping, or grabbing state of mind uh, at that point. He is not only reeling, at least running possibly tumbling, right? Uh, being blown, you know, he's airborne at the time, right? Um, uh, and of course, he's too incorporeal to like leave a, uh, uh, you know, a crater in the ground when he lands several yards away. But, you know, I, that's really how I, I see him being blown back uh, by the, uh, by the, by the E-bomb there. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, so... Yeah, exactly. Lots of people skeptical that the Witch King would be capable, one way or another, capable of taking up the ring or, or, or certainly of claiming it if he did take it up. Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to be sure. But uh, I mean, first of all, I mean, you, you, you've got to think, right? It's not like Sauron totally trusts the Nazgul personally. Like, I, you know, you guys, I love you guys, right? I know you guys would always, are always thinking of me first, right? That's not what the relationship between Sauron and the Nazgul is like. You got to think. So if he's sending them after the ring, you've got to think that Sauron is reasonably confident that they're not going to turn it against him, right? I mean, you know, so yeah, I think that's, um, um, I think that's, that's, that's fairly clear. Um, and chopping off hands is just uncouth. I know, right? I mean, like, who would do that other than giant wolves? Um, yeah. Yeah, Karina, that it is, it is a kind of an interesting parallel, right? Um, that the orcs are ordered not to spoil the hobbits uh, by Saruman, right? Is the Witch King under a similar order? Yeah. Yeah, in a sense, right? I mean, I, you can kind of see the parallel there. Um, 
that they, um, uh, that the Nazgul, um, okay. So Saruman tells the orcs not to spoil them because he doesn't want them looting the bodies, right? Or living or dead, right? Because of course, like gold ring, right? They take it for themselves, obviously, um, you know, good loot, nice and handy is how they would describe that kind of thing, right? So he doesn't want to then have to go, like, now he's got to go, like, you know, uh, search all the nasty hiding places of all the orcs who, you know, he, he, Saruman does not want to have to do cavity searches on, like, all of the orakai who went uh, on this trip. So he tells them not to spoil uh, the hobbits. Um, it's obviously... You don't have the same issues, right, with the Nazgul. However, um, uh, he, that question of trust, right, is that, and I, I think, you know, Sauron's trust for the Nazgul, I suspect, is higher, but that's because, as uh, 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 Eric Cratcher was just saying on, on Twitter, they're his thralls, right? I mean, again, I think that's kind of his, his safeguard here. Right, they are enslaved to his will in ways that um, in ways that the orcs are not. We can see them being uppity, right? And you know, Ugluk keeps order, but you know, there are some who are going to defy that, um, who are ready to defy it. If he didn't uh, knock off a few a few heads, <laughs> uncommon fan, you're welcome. You're welcome for that image of Saruman having to perform cavity searches on the orcs. But you know, he would, right? I mean, he'd have to do that. Um, He'd probably come up with a scientific process, right? Like he'd, you know, probably have them uh, boiled or something. Uh, and then, you know, if you boil them down for stock, the ring would, would then drop to the bottom of the cauldron and then you could just siphon off the orc slop and, and uh, take out the ring, right? That's probably how Saruman would do it. And he's mind of metal and wheels. Um, anyway, uh, so <laughs> how did I get onto this topic? Never mind. Never mind. Yeah, it would be kind of, never no, never mind. I'm not going to make the comparison I was just going to make. Okay. Um so uh <laughs> totally gotten it's much better on common fan. Good. Yeah. Rendering down orcs for stock is a much, much better image uh than doing cavity searches. I totally agree. Um anyhow, um yeah. I think I'm good. Are we good? I know that we don't necessarily all agree. And like I say, you know, with passages like this, it's really hard to be definitive. I mean, there are multiple ways that this could be interpreted. I could totally buy that this was a, a real legitimate blade. Like it was a, you know, a steel blade or iron, maybe iron would be kind of cool. I mean, it would rust. You'd have to, you know, uh, oil it and whatever. But anyway, still like it, I, I could see, um, something like an iron blade or even an obsidian blade or, uh, or, or even a steel blade, which is again, magically empowered to do what it does. Right. So that the, the splinter that comes off it is, is again, splintered off by the will of the witch King. Um, one, one way or another. Um, yeah. Any, okay. Any, okay. All right. <laughs> Looks like soup's back on the menu. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Okay, so there we are. <laughs> All right. Um, let's move on, because that's what today the theme of today's class is. So Strider has just come back. 
He sat down on the ground, and taking the dagger hilt, laid it on his knees, and he sang over it a slow song in a strange tongue. Then, setting it aside, he turned to Frodo, and in a soft tone, spoke words the others could not catch. From the pouch at his belt, he drew out the long leaves of a plant. These leaves, he said, I have walked far to find. For this plant does not grow in the bare hills, but in the thickets away south of the road, I found it in, I found it in the dark by the scent of its leaves. He crushed a leaf in his fingers, and it gave out a sweet and pungent fragrance. It is fortunate that I could find it, for it is a healing plant that the men of the West brought to Middle-earth. Athalus, they named it, and it grows now sparsely and only near places where they dwelt or camped of old. And it is not known in the North, except to some of those who wander in the wild. It has great virtues, but over such a wound as this, its healing powers may be small. Okay. Um, uh uh-oh. I'm hearing the enchanting music of me having timed out. Okay, so that first paragraph is the paragraph I was referring to earlier that I always... That, you know, I I, I read this carefully and I'm like, wait, have I ever even read this before? Um, If... You would ask me, like, so what does Aragorn do, right, to treat Frodo's wound? I'd have been all about the Athelas, right? I'd been like, yeah, obviously, right? He, um, um, he's, he, he, you know, gets the Athelas and he, he, you know, he boils it and he bathes the wound and there's the, you know, the aroma and it's, it's good, right? And that's, it's totally about the Athelas. When you actually look at it, Athelas is step three of the treatment process, um, and the first two steps, I think I have maybe I've always in my entire life overlooked. He sat down on the ground and taking the dagger hilt, laid it on his knees and sang over it a slow song in a strange tongue. Now, I'm not sure whether the song that he's singing over the dagger hilt is designed to be diagnostic or prescriptive, right? I mean, is this is this part of the treatment? Or is it part of the diagnostic process, right? I'm not sure. Like him singing it over the hilt of the blade suggests that he's um, uh, suggests that he's countering the magic, countering the power of the hilt, right? Um, but I could also buy that he was trying to, like, assess it, right? That he's, like, testing it in order to try to understand it better, perhaps. Um, but it definitely sounds like it's... Um, uh, yeah, Mudmore, like he's casting Identify Weapon. I have to admit that that's the kind of thing that I was thinking of there. Um, but I think it's more likely to be him singing against the power of the weapon itself, right? So he, he has, but it's, but it's still interesting to me that the focus is in a sense on the weapon. He's not singing over the body of Frodo. He's singing over the hilt of the knife, right? As if competing with that directly. Um, and, uh, this sort of makes a lot of sense. I can't help but of course, but remember, you know, like the fight between Finrod and Sauron in the Silmarillion, right? The song battle between the two of them. Um, and wonder if there's something kind of similar going on here. Um, this, of course, fits especially well with the assertion that I've been making, which is that the knife and the power of the knife 
is an extension of the will, an active extension of the will of the Witch King. So that when Aragorn is singing over the dagger hilt, he is, in a sense, opposing the will of the Witch King with his own will. Right? Um, so this seems to... Now, is this... I don't think, by the way... You can't rule it out. You can't rule out that singing like this is part of, like, you know, advanced healing process, right? Like, if you're a really good healer, you sing. Like, you know, so, like, uh, really good healers in the houses of healing would be, like, singing at every bedside, that it would be part of of affecting a cure, part of treatment uh, for, you know, most ills. I can't rule that out. But I tend not to think that that's what's going on here. Um, that this, again, it's just part of like, it's what I do as a healer. I sing like it's part of my, you know, it's part of my technique, right? I don't think so. I think it's, that's again, that's, I think it's why he's not singing over Frodo. He's singing over the knife, right? He's opposing its will with his. Um, and exactly, Matt, the hilt is where the runes are, the words of power of the blade. And so, yes, I think that he's um, opposing that. Though, Matt, that's exactly why I was wondering uh, the other possibility that I was suggesting is that he's trying to reveal the power of those runes so that he can understand it and know how to fight it. But I don't see any evidence in what he does later that he learned anything special from that. Um, so I, I definitely, I definitely think that it's, um, uh, I, I strongly inclined towards its being, uh, opposing the will of the knife or the will of the witch King there as well. Um, and uh, yeah, trifle. So uh, briefly, we'll skip really far. Well, I'll skip far ahead uh, in order to just say this. It's the second step, right? The first step is he sings over the blade. The second step, and this I am sure I never really noticed before, um, or at least never really thought through before. He turned to Frodo and in a soft tone spoke words the others could not catch. Now, I think when I had always when I when I had read that before, um, spoke words the others could not catch. I understood him as just like chanting a, a spell of some kind over Frodo, right? So he's um, he's he's casting some kind of spell. He's he's uttering some kind of incantation. He's putting forth power to try to help and to heal Frodo. Is how I always think. I'm pretty sure that's when it, when, whenever I have thought about that uh, that line, which is obviously not often enough, um, I think that's how I always understood it. But of course, that's not, I think, what he's doing. He's whispering to Frodo, not over Frodo, right? Not to Frodo's wound, not to the knife, not to the splinter in the wound, uh, not to Frodo's white blood cells. He is singing to Frodo. Right, he's turning to Frodo. He's rather speaking to Frodo, uh, uh, words that the others could not catch. Um, yeah, Tony, uh, comforting Frodo, possibly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, in fact, so this here's this is really funny, right? Not only have I never paid attention proper attention to that line, but I've often had a question which would have been answered by paying attention to that line. And I never answered it. Right. And my question was, okay, in the houses of healing with Eowyn and Mary and Faramir, not in that order. Um, the main thing that, yeah, like the Athos comes in, right. 
But that's not the main thing that he does. The main thing that he does with them is call to them, right? He puts his head on their brows and uh, and call. And especially with Faramir, there's that sense that like sort of mentally and spiritually, he is like wandering far, trying to call Faramir back, right? As he's calling out his name, which sounds increasingly distant, right? As if he's moving away. Um, the will of Aragorn to call them back to life and have them respond is obviously sort of the central part of the healing process of uh, Faramir, Eowyn, and Merry in the Houses of Healing. So, you know, I read that in The Return of the King, and I'm like, so, um, why didn't he do that with Frodo? Right? Frodo was must have, I mean, come on, he got stabbed by the ring wraith, right? So, I mean, surely he was undergoing, experiencing the, the, the Black Breath, right? So why doesn't he call out to Frodo? he totally does right he does exactly the same thing with frodo in exactly the same order right first he 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 speaks to frodo words that only frodo can hear nobody else can hear right and then he he like you know uh, brings out the athalas right exactly as he does in the houses of uh, of uh, of healing so um yeah i have there's every reason to believe that he is doing for Frodo here the same thing that he does, or rather the other way around, right? That when he's, getting, when he's in the Houses of the Healing, he's doing what he does for Frodo here. Now it's different, and it works differently in the different circumstances. The different circumstances being how far gone they are, Faramir very close to death, right? Um, uh, but also, so not only the different circumstances in that way, Mary much more lightly wounded, much much easier to recall, right, than uh, than Eowyn or, or Faramir were. Um, but also, of course, the different circumstances of them and their the state of their hearts at the time, right, the sort of the spiritual condition they were in pre-encounter with the Nazgul. But then also the difference of the circumstance of, Far of Aragorn's relationship to them, right? Faramir making that very plain, right? You know, um, who would lie idle when, when the king uh, calls? Um, it is clear that he hears the voice of his king calling to him. Uh, and so he responds, right? And, and again, he makes that very explicit. Um, with Eowyn, it's tricky, right? Um, she responds too, but uh, her response is tough. We'll come back to that in several years. Um, with Mary, it's simpler, right? Um, and it seems to be not like I, your king, call you, right? But his old friend Strider, who is calling him. It is uh, It is to friendship and fellowship that Mary seems to be recalled in the Houses of Healing, right? Now, of course, Frodo and Strider here do not have a very solid relationship, right? I mean, I'm not saying they're not okay, but I'm saying they don't have a long history here. Um, in you know, what kind of power does he have to be able to call Frodo back? I don't really know. Right. But the fact is, um, that does seem to be what he's doing. Now we, we're not told and we get no indication in this sentence. What are the words? All we know is that nobody else can hear them. Right. And I'm guessing maybe Frodo doesn't remember them well enough to, uh, because uh, Frodo's unconscious at the time, right? So he, you know, Sam doesn't hear it. Frodo doesn't remember it. So nobody records what it was that Aragorn called out to him. Um, but, but anyway, um, I don't think it's, it doesn't seem to have as dramatic an effect, right? As it does in the Houses of Healing. Partly that's because Aragorn himself is in a different place at that point. But, but also I think it, it also kind of has to do with their relationship 
too a little bit here. But again, the big point is clearly he's doing the same thing, right? The same thing here that he will do in the House of the Healing. Um, and I, I, can't, I couldn't even believe it. Just like prepping for class tonight. Again, I was reading that paragraph and I'm like, holy cow, there it all is. Um, notice how magical? I mean, to use the dangerous word, right, that made Tolkien super uncomfortable. Um, uh, how magical slash spiritual, I guess you could really kind of talk about it either way in this instance, Aragorn's treatment plan is, right? Um, yes, it's about, but it's not just like about the healing qualities of Athelas, right? That's part of it. It's important. It's a healing plant, um, but it's... Uh, um, it's not, it's not just that, right? Um, that's only the third part of the three part cure. The first part of which is this direct, like I shall sing a counter spell to your spell, right? Then I will call Frodo, uh, in order to, you know, draw him back from the shadow. And then I'm going to bring out the Athelas, right? Um, yeah, yeah. And JJ, I agree. Even the nature of the healing that Athelas brings seems to be as much spiritual as physical. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, there's no indication of a real physical process uh, there. I mean, I'm not saying you couldn't make one, right, or think up one, but that's not the way it's described. The way it's, it's, because it, it's not, it doesn't have to be ingested, right? It's not, it, it doesn't heal in that way. Um, it doesn't have to be, uh, I mean, he bathes the wound with it, but again, it's not even. Um, well, especially in the return of the king, the emphasis is on the effect of the aroma, right? Yeah, yeah. Anyway, whoop, sorry, losing my place here. This is what I meant to do. Okay, I don't want to. Okay, um, so yeah, I wonder. Aragorn's words, Fourth Thomas suggests that. Um, uh, over such a wound as this, its healing powers may be small, suggests that it really can be useful against more mundane injury. Uh, quite possibly. Quite possibly. Um, uh, but again, in what way and in what sense, right? Um, oh, Cecilia, what a great point. Um, Let's see. Hang on. Okay. Let's see. Yeah, I'm looking at what he does with the Athos here. Okay, he draws out the long leaves. And he crushes the leaf in his fingers and it gives out the fragrance, right? And he hasn't even put it in the water yet, but let's keep, let's keep reading. He threw the leaves into boiling water and bathed Frodo's shoulder. The fragrance of the steam was refreshing and those that were unhurt felt their minds calmed and cleared. The herb also had also some power over the wound 
for Frodo felt the pain and also the sense of frozen cold lessen in his side. But the life did not return to his arm, and he could not raise or use his hand. He bitterly regretted his foolishness and reproached himself for weakness of will, for he now perceived that in putting on the ring he obeyed not his own desire, but the commanding wish of his enemies. He wondered if he would remain maimed for life, and how they would now manage to continue their journey. He felt too weak to stand. The others were discussing this very question. They quickly decided to leave Weathertop as soon as possible. I think now, said Strider, that the enemy has been watching this place for some days. If Gandalf ever came here, then he must have been forced to ride away, and he will not return. In any case, we are in great peril here after dark, since the attack of last night, and we can hardly meet greater danger wherever we go. Yeah, Mike, Frodo's more awake and alert than I was expecting, too. Um, that seems to have totally torched my previous theory that Frodo was unconscious and didn't remember what he said. Does Frodo just not reveal it? Is he, is he being coy? Is that private? He doesn't want to share what Strider said? Um, yeah. Yeah, he is. Frodo is more with it than I was remembering there, too, Mike. Um... Belong's Bond is wondering if he's singing to the Athalos rather than to Frodo. Um, wait. Does he sing again? No, he's speaking to Frodo. He sings to the knife, he speaks to Frodo, then he talks about the Athalos, he crushes it, and he puts it in the water. The boiling water. Right, he boils it. Yeah, he makes Athelus tea. An infusion of Athelus. Which is, of course, just what the herb master you know, refers to in uh, House of the Healing. Um, the f okay, let's see. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's the hilt he sings over. Anyway, okay. Um, let's look at the power of the herb over the wound. Frodo felt the pain and also the sense of frozen cold lessen in his side. But the life did not return to his arm, and he could not raise or use his hand. Okay. Um, yeah, Tony, I think you're right. We do get a number of moments where we would really like to know what Frodo's thinking here, right? But he doesn't tell us. Um, and that's interesting. That's interesting. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, Evil Dr. Cannon, is, it is interesting. Well, it's in his side and his arm, right? So his arm is dead. So, wait arm his arm is dead uh and his side had the remember the deadly chill that was spreading down his side um that i think is really interesting this supports my theory it is still my theory that his wound is on the outer part of his shoulder like up not far from the joint um of his shoulder um and actually like in his arm rather than up like by his collarbone um, because his arm is useless, right? I mean, he can't even lift his hand. Um, 
So the wound seems to have deadened his arm, but the chill spreading to his side, that seems to me to speak to the power of the splinter that's still in it, the power of the Witch King that's still working through the wound and which is working inwards, right? Um, so the 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 chill, the deadly chill spreading down his side refers, I, I think, would be Frodo's physiological manifestation of that splinter of, you know, the, the, the power and will working inwards towards his heart from his shoulder. Right. But, um, if, and that would also make sense why the chill goes away. So when, um, The pain and the froze sense of frozen cold lessens in his side, but the life doesn't return to his arm. So his arm is not like unwounded, right? I mean, he's still wounded. The physical wound he's received is still there. Um, and his arm is still dead, but the, the spreading influence is slowed. Frodo or the narrator here attributes. Well, it's kind of Frodo, the narrator talking about Frodo attributing, um, the lessening of the chill in his side to the herb, right? To the Athelas itself. And that seems certainly that it contributed. But again, I'm kind of wondering if that's uh, perhaps step one, that is the song that he sang over the hilt, uh, perhaps might not be as important for that as, uh, um, as the Athelas itself. Um, yeah. And Brandon, I agree that there's uh, so, I, well, wait, hang on, Brandon, before I get to your point, let me just finish that thought there. Um, the spreading of the deadly chill suggests to me that in fact, the movement of the splinter initially was fast or at least very much faster, right? If it's spreading already from his shoulder to his side, like what minutes, hours at most after the wound, um, he's probably going to be dead within what, even if he's tough, right? He's going to be dead within, uh, within a couple, like a day or so. And that's in fact, exactly what, uh, Gandalf suggests, right? That, uh, it's a marvel that he wasn't right. Um, and I, th I, so I think we, we can see the effectiveness of this treatment of the combination of treatments, the threefold treatment that Strider has given to Frodo here. Um, but anyway, Brandon, now back to your really important point. Um, Frodo's thoughts about his injury are feeling useless and despondent as to what they'll do now. Um, uh, reproaching himself, right? Feeling guilt and, and uh, 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 well, if it were Sam, he'd be using lots of the gaffer's hard names, right? But uh, Frodo still is, is rebuking himself, right? Um, and... Uh, I agree. I think that that's super important. Uh, and notice that there's, that also fits the impact of the will of the witch king on him. Like on the one hand, on the one hand, he's having a moment of clarity, right? With his mind cleared by the Athalas and now recognizing in retrospect, yeah, I really blew it back there when I put the ring on. Right. I wasn't actually really driving the bus there. I was undergoing compulsion and I totally gave into it 
you know, uh, uh, like a wuss. That those are his thoughts, right, about himself. Um, but again, notice that despondency, that uh, that self reproach, that despair. How are we going to manage to continue our journey? I'm too weak even to stand. It's hopeless, right? That doesn't that kind of sound like the influence of the witch king as well. Now again. It's a perfectly logical thought. I'm not saying, you know, he has this otherwise totally inexplicable moment of despair. Like, his moment of despair is totally explicable. But again, in the context of the spiritual battle that's been going on, it seems significant, right, uh, that he's having those kinds of, uh, those kinds of thoughts. Um, now, uh, Domir, Domir Moria, what about that famous hobbit sturdiness? Yeah, well, I mean, he's still showing it. Um, and again, we don't know exactly how long it would have taken. Again, all I'm saying is that chill down the side suggests, it implies to me that the movement of the splinter, or at least the, 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 the effect of the wound, was proceeding way faster than it looks like. You know, he's not on the, uh, you know, what what is it in the end? 24 days, something like that. He's not on the 24-day trajectory, right, towards wraithification. Um, if in a couple hours the the sense of its presence right the sense of its power is already working into his side yeah you know i don't like his odds howsoever sturdy he is uh uh, i I don't like his odds for lasting more than a oh 17 days that's right um yep 17 days very good yep yeah good Good. Anyway, yeah, so um, he's not on the 17-day plan. It does not look like he's on a 17-day trajectory uh, there when, this, when the chill is already spreading into his side in, in a couple hours. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, Tony wonders if it wasn't influenced by Tolkien himself falling ill during the Somme uh, and having to be evacuated. But he was evacuated with trench fever. Um he wasn't, wasn't wounded. I mean, ironically, actually, it's much more like C.S. Lewis's experience. C.S. Lewis took shrapnel, um, which he carried in his body until he died. I'm pretty sure he still had some shrapnel in him um, through the rest of his life. Uh, so actually, in a sense, that like, you know, being wounded and bearing the wounds, and having to recover from the wounds and still having bits inside you um, – uh, it's exactly what C.S. Lewis went through, whereas Tolkien's experience was was different. He didn't receive a wound in that way. Um, but um, anyway, certainly it doesn't have to be exactly analogous uh, to be something that, uh, you know, Tolkien would have had some experience with uh, from uh, uh, his 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 war experience. No question. Um, anyway. OK, let's see couple brief notes about um uh a couple brief notes about that last paragraph the plans strider now says i think now that the enemy has been watching this place for some days so in retrospect the choice to come here probably wasn't that good after all remember this is one of the choices that he was debating right do we go? Do I discover the truth? Do I figure out what those flashes in the night were? Do I see if there's any sign of Gandalf or if those flashes in the night were Gandalf? I think that I personally 
in that sentence, detect at least a little shade of bitterness directed at himself by Strider there. I think now that the enemy has been watching this place for some days isn't explicitly add, and therefore I was a numbskull for bringing us here, but I do think that's kind of the implied subtext of the observation that uh, that Strider is making there. Um, if Gandalf ever came here, then he must have been forced to ride away, and he will not return. So, and again, there too, if Gandalf ever came here, now they have uncovered evidence that at least suggests that Gandalf was in fact there and get and Strider himself has already said that he himself believes that Gandalf was there. So once again, if Gandalf ever came here there too, I think that he has, um, I think that he is being harsh on himself, right? Not, I think seriously questioning his earlier interpretation, Right. Well, now I am second guessing my reading of the signs up on the top of the uh, on top of the hill. Right. I don't think that he's really saying that. Again, this just sounds to me like he's angry at himself and being like, uh, you know, essentially saying it doesn't matter if Gandalf came or not. Right. I mean, yes, I wanted to come here because I wanted to see if Gandalf was here, if that was Gandalf, if he lived or died. I, I wanted to know what happened. Um, and now he's like, it doesn't matter. Right. It's completely immaterial. It was not worth it. Fool of a strider. <laughs> exactly. Um, Tony, he does seem to be implying that he thinks the Nazgul had the um, uh, he had the hill staked out since their encounter with Gandalf. Yeah, it that's um, that's what he means when they've been watching this place for some days. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, Croucher, I think that um, there might be a kind of unspoken hope that Gandalf drives some of them away. Again, I think that there's that implication earlier on when he's like, why they weren't all here, I'm not sure. Um, but, um, but yeah, the main point is, I now think it was foolish of us to come here, and there is certainly no good in staying. We are in great peril here after dark since the attack of last night, and we can hardly meet greater danger wherever we go. So, and again, that last statement, we can hardly meet greater danger wherever we go. I mean, again, it's a little hard for me not to read that as Aragorn essentially saying, well, here's the good news. The good news is I can't possibly screw it up any worse than I already have, right? So, I've led you into a trap by your most deadly enemies. Um, I might lead you into other difficulties in the future, but the good news is they're guaranteed to be less deadly than the trap I already led you into. Right. So let's look at the bright side, people. Um, one of the, the word that jumps out at me most in that last sentence is here. In any case, we are in, if he had just said, in any case, we are in great peril after dark since the attack of last night, I'd have been like, yeah, wherever you go after dark, you're in, you're going to be in trouble, right? Because they can sniff their way after you. They're going to be able to track you. So, um, and they, you know, more, they're more powerful at night. So, you know, if, um, um, sure, you're in, but that's not what he says, right? Or rather he adds, uh, 
we are in great peril here after dark since the attack of last night. Uh, and I'm not 100% sure how to read that. Again, I, 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 my inclination is to say that that word here is significant, that if they were to remain there, if they were not to go on, it would in some sense give the ringwraiths more power over them. I cannot imagine that what he means is like, well, they know we're here, so if we stay here, they'll attack us again. Whereas if we keep walking, we might be able to shake them. Like, I don't think he's saying we might be able to shake them. Exactly. Um, they probably could find them. Um, yeah, exactly. The Nazca, Tarlonio suggests the Nazca will have uh, established some kind of spiritual foothold on that place. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, um, the Dell totally has bad vibes now. <clears throat> Absolutely. They're going to be more afraid in this place. Um, I think they need to get moving for their, because in order to be, if they are going to be in a place, like a, a sort of a, a mental, emotional and spiritual place to be able to oppose the Nazgul. And that's what it's mostly about. It's not about swashbuckling, right? It's not about your torch throwing skills. Uh, it's about where you are uh, in your spiritual state, right? If you're going to oppose the Nazgul and staying here, where they were already attacked once and where they're going to be like, as soon as it gets, they're going to be looking at every rock on the hillside saying, is that really a rock? Right? So yeah, uh, let's, let's move. Let's keep moving. Um, and yes, evil Dr. Ken and I agree. Moving would also be an act of resistance. Whereas staying is giving up. Yeah. If they're like, well, we're never going to get to Rivendell. We might as well just try to ford up here and hope somebody comes to rescue us. Right. Uh, but probably nobody will. Yeah. I would think that would be a bad move. Right. Whereas again, like let us, it looks bad. I know, but let us, let us forge on, let us make it to Rivendell. Uh, let's keep our hopes up that, that, that seems much more effective, puts them in a, in a, uh, 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 a much stronger place. Um, yeah. And Tony, I agree. Even from the pure, most pragmatic possible, uh, standpoint, they're not in more danger moving than they are. I guess what he says, right? We can hardly meet greater danger wherever we go, right? Um, so they will be at least as safe moving as staying there, and it can only be safer than uh, than staying. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Boomful, you're right. Meaning all nine riders would have been worse, but in gloomy Strider's defense, that wasn't an option, right? He He, he led them into the worst possible danger that was available to them, right? Uh, it's not that we can't imagine greater dangers theoretically, right? Uh, but he did, in fact, manage to find a trap set by the greatest possible danger that was available to them. Um, yeah, yeah. And Brandon, you're right. There is a lot of PTSD stuff going on here, right? We saw Strider's PTSD. Frodo's definitely going to have it. We know he's going to have it, right? And Strider doesn't want all three of the other hobbits to develop it. Um, yeah, yeah. They're all going to be getting the cold shakes when night comes around uh, in this dell again. Um, unlikely to become a uh, popular camping spot with them uh, in the future, no matter what happens. As soon as the daylight was full, they had some hurried food and packed. It was impossible for Frodo to walk, so they divided the greater part of their baggage among the four of them and put Frodo on the pony. In the last few days, the poor beast had improved wonderfully. 
It already seemed fatter and stronger, and had begun to show an affection for its new masters, especially for Sam. Bill Fernie's treatment must have been very hard for the journey in the wild to seem so much better than its former life. They started off in a southerly direction. This would mean crossing the road, but it was the quickest way to more wooded country, and they needed fuel, for Strider said that Frodo must be kept warm, especially at night, while fire would be some protection for them all. It was also his plan to shorten their journey by cutting across another great loop of the road. East beyond Weathertop, it changed its course and took a wide bend northward. Northwards. 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 Okay. Um, yeah, I, Belongsman, I wonder if it's something like residual black breath. Yeah, yeah, it, it is almost like that. Um, okay. Um the pony, right? Now, Arden Cran, you're totally right. Totally right that we left the pony out of our reenactment. We totally did. Um, I would like to think that had this attack been several months later, the presence of Bill the Pony would have been of uh, spiritual assistance to Sam, at least, right? Would have helped to bolster Sam. Um, Maybe, maybe. Doesn't seem like he's a major player. Um, in fact, I kind of suspect he's sort of tied up off to the side uh, and utterly irrelevant to the actual attack. Um, uh, yeah, Torlonio, I doubt um, I doubt he would have uh, been able to, you know, unleash the flying hooves of, uh, of terror and... Uh, you know, clipped the Witch King in the shoulder on, on the way past or something. But um, anyway, uh, yeah, Karita, he does uh, he does get a beautiful story arc. Bill the Pony does. Yeah, totally agree. Um, yeah. Anyway, uh, <laughs> Bill would have gotten overshadowed by the fire anyway. It went in the in the recreation. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, anyhow, I uh, I just love this little detail that we get. Right, uh, remember it was uh, Bill was called a thin, half-starved creature um, back in Bree uh, when he was introduced. Um, clearly, he was sort of kept penned up and not fed over well. Uh, by Bill Fernie. Um, so just being able to wander and therefore presumably to graze uh, some on his own um, would improve, uh, doubtless has improved his uh, uh, his diet, right, since the time when he was uh, with Bill Fernie. Um, but um, anyway, uh, his affection for his new masters seems to be as important as his getting fatter and stronger. Right. Um, even just the, the way the, this sort of sense of the positive impact on bill. And of course I can't, <laughs> it's mad violinist. I was just going to make a serious point about that. Uh, we have notice we do have the direct correspondence right between Frodo's ill-advised and possibly slightly nervous joke 
about him becoming a wraith if the thinning process doesn't go on indefinitely. Right? There's much less of Frodo, but there's much more of Bill. Mad Violinist thinks that's a little suspicious. Right? However, um, um, he, uh, I, I think it's, I, I find that parallel actually kind of interesting. Right? Um, Frodo, of course, is getting healthier too. Um, but, uh, you know, he's, uh, 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 what's that crack that Pippin makes when they set out, right? You won't feel the weight so much when you've walked off some of your own, right? So, you know, the thinning process for Frodo, remember, it's how it starts, right? With Mary saying, you look, you look twice the Hobbit, you know, that you did. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, and that's what leads Frodo to say, you know, it's odd considering there's actually a great deal less of me, right? Um, so on the one hand, you can see both Frodo and Bill are rounding into shape, right? They're they're they are in being improved by the exercise and things, though moving in opposite directions. Um, but I think there's more to it than that. And again, it's to me an interesting parallel. Frodo is a, makes a joke that would seem, based on the reading that we did several weeks back. Uh, okay, a bunch of weeks back now, um, it would seem to kind of betray some anxiety in Frodo, right? Um, that becoming a wraith is rather on his mind and that perhaps, you know, his joke seems to suggest that he views becoming a wraith as at least a plausible, if not a likely uh, end point for his career and his adventure, right? Um, what we see with Bill Fernie or not Bill Fernie, with Bill the Pony, right? Bill Fernie's pony uh, is exactly the opposite, right? As he is uh, under the influence and surrounded by the, uh, uh, it, I think it's clear that he is showing affection for his new masters because he is receiving affection from his new masters, right? Um, that the, uh, um, the effect is, you know, again, spiritually, I don't, it's a little weird to think about the spiritual state of the pony. Um, but again, seeing him, uh, he's moving in a positive direction, right? Frodo is worrying that he is going to thin and thin until he becomes a wraith, right? Bill, the pony is, uh, de <laughs> right? He's moving distinctly in the opposite direction, um, uh, becoming more and more solid um, and uh, and more and more fat, which is in this case a very good sign. Um, exactly, JJ, especially since the paragon of pony uh, health and happiness that we know of is Fatty Lumpkin, right? Clearly, Fatty Lumpkin is both the most happy and healthy pony uh, of anyone that we know, right? Uh, clearly, there is no pony who beats Fatty Lumpkin in, you know, uh, life and job satisfaction. So clearly, clearly, this is a move uh, in uh, in the right direction. Okay. Um, interesting business about the fire here. Uh, we see... Uh, you know, this, of course, is sort of nothing new exactly. Um, uh, certainly the business about it's being protection for them all. I think we, you know, we, we understand where we're coming from here with that. Um, the interesting thing to me is about Frodo being kept warm. That, that of course, is entirely practical. But I think it's more than just practical as well. 
remember the influence of the wound on Frodo was perceived as a chill, right? It was, it was perceived as a chill. Uh, so he, in fighting it with fire, he's not just being pragmatic here, right? Um, whatever kind of spiritual presence or influence fire has, and it seems to have some, right? The writers don't love it. Um, it seems to have some kind of an effect on the wound, or at least Strider believes that it will. So whatever it is in fire that now well, repels might be too strong a word, but discomfits black riders, right? Um, will hopefully, he seems to be hoping, help also to slow the progression of the wound as well. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, cool. Hey, Simpatine, welcome to Twitch. Glad you could join us live here. Um, okay. And then, of course, Boomful, as I think you were pointing out before, um, he, uh, um, he was, uh, he's doing a shortcut, right? Uh, and notice nobody complains, right? Pippin made a crack about it before. Um, he, uh, he's, he's, no one's, no one doubts Strider here now, right? Um, of course, he's going to shorten their journey by cutting across a great loop of the road, right? Like you do when you're Strider. Uh, his cuts shorter along don't go wrong, um, which is interesting in the context of his lack of confidence in himself just a slide ago, right? And all of those, what sounds pretty bitter, uh, things he was saying against himself and his own decisions. Um, well, I won't say saying against the cutting edge that they seemed to have that seemed to bear on himself and on the decisions that he made. Um, yeah, yeah. But yet he is still moving forward. He's not doubting himself. He might be chiding himself for the decision that he did make, but that's not going to stop him from moving forward. Yeah. Okay. That's pretty good. How many slides did we do tonight? Three? Wow. Three slides. That was intense. Right? I should probably stop there, though. <clears throat> so we can actually have a, a, a field trip at a reasonable time uh, tonight. And I can end, like, by midnight or something. Um, which I've been getting pretty sloppy about doing. Um, but um, anyway, okay. So we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna stop uh, the book portion uh, of our discussion here tonight. Uh, and we're going to switch over to our field trip, right? Uh, so we're going to do our field trip. Uh, and uh, so I'm going to say goodbye to the folks on Twitter. Thanks, you guys. We're uh, 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 Great contributions again tonight. Good to have a, 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 an increasingly steady audience um, uh, on the Twitter side. That's been a lot of fun. Uh, uh, I mean, live Twitter audience. I know that there have been people who have been watching asynchronously too, but anyway, so thanks everybody joining, uh, for joining us on Twitter. I'm going to say goodbye to those folks. We're switching over. You can join us on twitch.tv slash Signum So bye Twitter people. Okay. Good evening, everyone. All right. Good evening. <laughs> All right. Um, so we're headed back to Gartha Garwin tonight because we didn't All right. get to finish it. Um, 
Yeah. Well, right. we were having a fun time climbing on all the walls and stuff. Yes. And looking at the new map. Yep. Yep. Oh, yeah, the all new right, map. So. Yeah, that was like half the segment last time. <laughs> yeah, it was. I was totally ambushed by that map. <laughs> Middle Earth from space. <laughs> so, yeah, no, I was thinking it over. So it was like Obsidian, was it Obsidian Stiletto? Obsidian and... Stiletto. And evil and payload. Evil payload. Yeah. yeah, evil payload sounds like the garage band grunge people. And then obsidian stiletto sounds like sort of wannabe new new wave okay. band or something like that. that. Uh yeah. I get a feeling they'd be doing covers of each other at some point. It's possible. Oh, okay. Hey, I was lagging and found myself accidentally pointed in the correct direction. Oh, wow. That's, that's unusual. Yeah, I've seen a lot of people roller skating and flying broomsticks around the town. Ah. Is it Harvest Festival again? Uh, they will be launching that after the patch tomorrow. I think after they the wanted patch. to debug okay. everything first, and then the Harvest math will be up with the new patch, which is going to happen between 8 and 12 tomorrow. Okay. okay. So I don't always want to play Lotro in the morning, but when I do, <laughs> it's a server patch. Right. That's the way of it, though. Well, I'm actually glad they're doing a Wednesday today instead of a Tuesday. Tuesday, I'm always like, oh, I have to get on and get ready for everything. Wednesday, and I've usually been doing this until midnight, so I don't mind sleeping in. Right. All right. Okay, so is this where the glitch is happening? Um, I don't know if it's happening for everyone. It's actually not happening for me for Oscarth. Okay, let's see. So they might have had a quick hot patch for that. But yes, if if you're looking at the if you're looking at the stable master and you know you have a swift travel for Oscarth and it's not working, try dismounting first. Right. It should clear it up. This was a bug that was happening earlier this week, but they might have done a hot patch to at least fix this before they go into the big thing tomorrow. Okay. So we're talking about like Frodo and the what shard getting towards his ha- heart and stuff like that. Sorry. Yep. Uh, yeah. And uh, my head just kept going back to Iron Man, actually. The Iron Man, yeah. There were a couple of yeah, people who the, were making Iron Man reference with the shrapnel. Yeah, with the arc yeah. reactor. Because that was, you know, not only a physical detriment, but it was also became a spiritual one as he became a better person. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, I thought it was interesting how they uh um I I, I thought it was interesting how they play at least, you know, sort of the connection to his own sort of emotional state, right? And his uh his whole kind of attitude and outlook as well and the way that they made that kind of um, you know, connected with the shrapnel. I thought it was interesting how that developed over, uh, certainly over the three Iron Man movies. Mm-hmm. But we're thinking it, so we're thinking after all, it's Jack's fault, huh? Uh, <laughs> yeah, who knows? Jack, Jack Lewis, I mean, yeah. folks, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, maybe. I mean, I, I, again, like, goodness knows that that kind of experience, that is that experience of taking shrapnel and having it uh-huh. lingering in your body is uh, not something that was, I mean, that, that did happen to Lewis, but it, it's not like it was a rare or unusual experience. Oh, yeah. No, no, no. That was... Uh, uh... For people in the war. And, of course, he didn't really... I mean, he didn't know Lewis until long after that. So, um, mm-hmm. long after the war, I mean. So, uh... Oh, yeah. No, no. But, you know, I'm sure it came up in England discussions. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, we went through <laughs> the sort of outer segments of this. And again, one of the things that I want to look at here is that based on my thinking uh, and my sort of our, you know, geographic and archaeological analysis here in the Lowlands, uh-huh. it is my theory that Gartha Garwin here is the, is the center, is the, is the, the, the kind of primary locus of Rudauer. Like this was the seed of Rudauer. The hub um, of Rudar. That's my that's my theory. Um, and it's a very elaborate palace. It is. I mean, this place. So yeah, I wanted to go this way here today. We we kind of came around through to this uh-huh. areas around here. Um, hang on, it's over here. Ooh, it's big bad. It's supposed yeah. to be here. I think that's only in the Radagast instance. Look at this guy though. Oh, yeah, look at that throne. Oh, man, that's like a green man. Oh, yeah, there's a lot. Wow, I never... Okay, I gotta just... No, I don't need to dismount. So, first yeah, of all, we have these... Yeah, I gotta this. We have these kings, right? right? Yeah. Yeah, because he... Look at this. This guy, he doesn't look sketchy at all. Right? <laughs> I mean, this is a totally non-sketchy looking Rudauer and King. It's obviously Rudauer because it's got the... It's got the forest crown below it uh-huh. and and the scepter i think isn't that the scepter it's got an incredibly well it's it's weird it's like scepter on one side and the sword on the other or it's a sword with spiky bits on the bottom which is very mm. very impractical yeah i'm not quite sure about what he's holding what i'm looking at here though are his sleeves and i think mm-hmm. those are trees on the, on the sleeves Oh, is, pretty. Which is very pretty. Very different. Like, very lovely. It's like a kimono pattern. Yeah, it's very bucolic, right? I mean, this is... And he looks like a nice chap. Well, let me see if I can... Yeah, this is this is the good PR statue. Yeah. This is His, the whole, don't let them know that we're the evil king of evil. Well, see, that's the point, is I don't think this guy was an evil king of evil yet. Oh, yet. Yet. I mean, he might never have become so. Yeah, look uh, at this Joker. Okay, see, now this guy has a few more issues. Now, why is he double fisting Palantir? Palantirs. He's going to get feedback. <laughs> I mean, that's. That's fairly that remarkable. Now, I mean, we know, of course, there were multiple Palantiri. I mean, there were, what, three in the northern kingdoms though two of them that were primarily used right because there was so, the, the yeah. third that was out on the coast which is really just oriented to like look off towards uh numenor and uh toleresia um uh-huh. whereas the, the, the i mean there were both of the palantiri 
that um, Arvedui had with him, right, that went down in the Bay of Forakel, um, the one from Numinous and the one from uh, Amonsul. It's a conference call, belongs Monseth. Um, <laughs> oh, so it's, uh, yeah, you could just see that with the voluntary. Okay, no, okay, I still can't hear you. I still can't hear you. <laughs> right. Dog barking in the background. Right. Let's start and introduce ourselves. But uh, yeah, it's like, is it wishful thinking or is it just a bid for symmetry? Well, I think the symmetry can't hurt, although the yeah. rest of it isn't symmetrical. I mean, yeah, look not at exactly his beard. It's like his beard is like threaded around him. Yeah. And um, the, okay, his crown, look at the difference between his crown here, mm-hmm. right? And the crown of the other guy over here. The P, the good PR statue. Yeah. Yeah. Now that's, that's tasteful and kind of subtle and not spiky. Not Iron Not Crown-like. Yes, it's Benevolent Forest King's crown. And I agree. I think it is a scepter, not a sword, that he's holding. Its uh-huh. bottom is kind of pointy, but I'm not seeing really a hilt. I mean, it, that you could say that that's just like a square pommel that's sp- sticking out above his hands, but there doesn't seem to be any cross piece. And it could if, just be dissolving the into be the... Really short. Could just be dissolving into the front piece, like you know how he has no legs and stuff. Right. Well, it's possible, but I don't think so. I think it's a scepter, especially given the whole scepter thing. Right. It's clearly no, no. Not I, the I agree, it's a scepter, but I think the the foot might not be pointy. I think it's just dissolving tastefully right. into. Oh, I see. The, 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 the right, the foot. Got it. Yes. yes. Okay. No, Quite. I agree. So, here's my theory. Here, though, here's the point that I would come back to. Mm. What I find so fascinating about these statues here. Rudauer is not evil from day one. Even no one the, ever is. Even the, exactly, Rudauer falls. But so I mean, like, okay, so claiming the throne, you know, that's not great. But presumably they had some claim, right? I mean, the 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 disagreements between you know Arthodyne and Cardolan and Rudauer could very well have been honest disagreements at first, right? You know, They did all share the same bloodline in theory, exactly. right? Yeah, they did. They did. And although it does seem that the people of... I mean, the fact that Aragorn is descended from the kings of Arthodyne and the fact that, you know, Aragorn is talking... is spoken of as being, you know, descended in unbroken lineage from Isildur does suggest that, you know, the kings of Arthodyne have a more... are more... a, a more direct line... But, you know, we know how, I mean, you know, like the Wars of the Roses happened, right? You know, both of them yeah. have claims. Um, and you can say that one is better than another, but it's not like it's a slam dunk that the House of Lancaster's claim to the throne is a better claim than the House of York. I mean, they're both a little bit on the flimsy side. Um, yeah, it's like we're at this point, we're looking at second cousins all around. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so anyway, the point is, I think that it's important for us not to think that Rudauer is just like the evil empire from day one, right? Um, it's part of the tragedy of the, of the Arnorian civil wars that things collapse to that extent. And Rudauer's tragedy is particularly strong because they fall furthest, um, from, 
faction of the Dunedain who felt they had a rightful claim to the throne that was being denied, and then they made the choice to splinter off, which is never a good move, right? And now they're at war uh, with their companions and, you know, with their, with their, their you know, their relatives with the yeah. other Arnorian kingdoms. And in order yeah. to, in order to, um, uh, you know, win that war, they ally themselves with Angmar. It's yeah. almost the second fall of Numenor in that way. Yes. Yeah, exactly. It does kind of mirror in some ways the fall of Numenor. It's not that the sequence of events exactly mirrors it. Um, but again, that, that like desire to draw on some, on, you know, a forbidden power in order to achieve your end, or even yeah. <laughs> perhaps by that stage in the Arnorian civil wars, to achieve vengeance, you know, for the wrongs they felt they had suffered and that kind of thing. Um, yeah, by allying themselves with a charismatic uh, nut job bad guy. Right, right. Just like Numenor. Um, uh, so, yeah, I, I definitely think that. So, I'm wondering if we're not seeing some memory of that here, right? Like this, this king, um, you know, I wonder if this is. It, it makes me think of. Um, you know, the passage that I'm just kind of acknowledging is in the back of my head is that passage from the magician's nephew when Diggory and Polly come into the, the, the hall of images, right? With uh, all the kings yeah. and queens of Charn and the first kings uh-huh. and queens of Charn are look beautiful and happy. And then as it proceed, they like continue to look beautiful, but no longer happy. Right. And then uh-huh. they, you know, until at the end, you've got, of course, Jadis at the end who looks evil and terrible, but devastatingly beautiful. Um, um, basically, that's kind of what I'm imagining, in a sense, as happening uh, in Rudauer, and some archaeological evidence of that here, that we are seeing here, would be my theory, a legitimately benevolent Rudauran king, right? Like, this could be yeah. the guy, this could be the dude who thought, you know, honestly thought he should have made a bad choice, right, to splinter off, but, um, but he... Uh, legitimately thought he should be king right and was trying to be a good ruler and 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 had what he felt were good reasons you know to break off from the rest and to to oppose arthodyne um and doubtless would have considered the civil war you know the war of arthodynian aggression and all that kind of thing right yeah Um, and then you progress right then you next thing you know you're looking like this guy right who's like i have all the palantiri (laughs) and like my crown has is now like a, is now derivative of the iron crown um, <laughs> of Angmar, right? Yeah. And he copied my style, right? Exactly, exactly. Um, so I definitely, I, I this would sort of fit with my theory that this is the this place is the heart of Rudauran power. And that here in this place, we can see, oh, look, again, we get the star superimposed on the crown or the crown superimposed upon the star above the scepter there. Oh, yeah, yeah. Just like in that, uh, uh, the bath outside near yes. the stable master at Oscar. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the only other place I've ever seen that. At least that I noticed. Anyway, um, yeah, so, so that's pretty cool. I totally mm-hmm. forgot that this crown was here. I remember that this was the place where the the big mob always spawns that you have to do the quest for. But uh, but I that's a gaunt man who's here though, right? Not yeah, something like that. Yeah, of a soldier. 
Yeah. Maybe it was a ghost of a soldier. I can't remember. Was he just a big white or was he a gaunt man? He might have been a gaunt man. Oh, it's Probably. been too long. Yeah. I don't remember. Um, but anyway, yeah. No, that's, that's, that's really cool. That's really cool. And remember the fancy portcullises? There's another one that we just wrote underneath, right? Yeah. Again, like the, the sense of... <laughs> yeah, the sense of like this like archaeological evidence of like an older, nicer root hour before things really went bad. Yeah, because it's a portcullis that's it's more ornamental than functional given yeah. the... Yeah, exactly. How delicate and lacy it is. Yeah, exactly. Whoa. Okay, I'm looking at walls, crowns all yeah. over. Not too much else. This wall always struck me as a little strange. I guess what was this? this is just a building. Okay, and we have flagstones. Yep. But what was this? Blank walls, no windows. I might have well, expected Well, let's see. The tiles keep going. Here. It keeps going? The tiles, well, it is. It sort of fades out. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No idea what this was, and there's more over here. There's just a bunch of random build to see. Ah, see exactly something like this now. <clears throat> That's a gazebo. Yeah, exactly. I would have expected a gazebo back here, obviously. But uh, let uh, me get the tree that's creeping up on us. Oh yeah. <laughs> you know you're absorbed in archaeological exploration when a tree sneaks up on you. Um, uh. That happens more times than I'd care to say. It's so true. Um, okay. Sorry, I was just looking this at This is one of the old archways. You notice the stone oh. on this one isn't the new yeah. pink concrete. Yeah. Does this suggest that... Are we seeing different... Because this is a fortification. I mean, look how thick those walls are. Look at that. Oh, I mean, yeah. That is massive. This is not yeah. like an interior wall here. This is not just like a, a partition. And this arch, right? Uh -huh. I mean, we don't see any portcullis or any gates in here. But, I mean, this is like twice as thick as my horse is long. Yeah. Well, this one you'd almost expect like a big iron, you know, gate and yeah, giant absolutely. plank door kind of deal. It's probably buried under the mud now. Absolutely. Which leads me therefore to a theory. And the theory is that, again, if this is the original sort of home and center of the um, of the, uh, of the people of Rudauer, mm -hmm. then you know, what are these guys? Grim white. Some, yeah, I got some dark waters out here too. It's really good for the deed if you need them. Um, okay, so so the theory is that what we're seeing in here, because again, like walls like those that one we were just looking at, these are okay. not these are not the kinds of walls that you would have inside, and we're deep inside the fortifications. Right? And you think about even if you think of the outer boundary of the. Uh, defenses here in Gartha Garwin as being mm -hmm. the, the, that, that pass that we come through from the blood circle. Um, and, you know, and the place is just inside there. Um, we're way inside that. We're like three, three defensive layers in from that. And yet we're seeing these, what look like external fortifications. Um, 
nevertheless, which leads me to wonder if we're not seeing multiple like historical layers added on, right? Like they originally, the original family of Rudauer had these uh, keeps here, right? Deep inside uh-huh. this valley. And then yeah. as the civil war escalated, they then sort of built outwards new layers of defenses. That's my theory. Because hmm. this is huge. This These is, are almost built like canals, too, with all the bridges. You think this area had water in it before. Yes. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, oh, look, gazebo with headless statue. <laughs> and artichokes. Yay. Um, yeah, I mean, this reminds yeah. me of the uh, the ruins in the Harlow Egg, really. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, of course, the standing water helps with that association, but... <laughs> yeah, um, it sure does. But, but yeah, than, it's a labyrinth. Yes, it's... And it's 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 huge. Oh, I, I, this is a boss up here, too, isn't there? Yeah, let me... Uh, I'm trying to help out some lowlies here. So. Yeah, sorry. It's all right. Soon have it done. We're all working together. Okay. And then I just want to see if this guy has a throne or anything interesting. No, look at the what is this? A slab? An altar slab? Let's see. Oh yeah, this is the part that looks like uh like barrow downs. Yeah, well, Some see, this is this is obviously later construction, right? Look how this slab has been erected. Up right in front of those of the kings. Oh, oh. yeah, it's still Ooh. got the Rudar thing on the oh, side. It does have the Rudar thing on the side. Do you think that the whites could have taken stones, like which already you know had the Rudar stamp on them already from elsewhere in the ruins and built these, recycled it as uh, yeah as a, to make a kind of altar here? Because I mean, this looks like a crude altar, right? It Not looks like cool, a different kind of stone, too. Almost like a rose kind of marble. Yeah. Yeah, like it might be transported from elsewhere. How many? Oh, there are five. This is the five kings. Yes. I said I was counting kings. Oh, that's... Yeah, they're all in a row this time. You don't have that one big one in the middle. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> Trying to see... Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. wonder if those five... Yeah, it's, once again, it's like the five kings. It's always five in the Rudar stuff, like... You wonder if that was how many generations back you can trace the true line. Yeah, maybe. I wonder. I wonder. Hmm, could this be a tomb? You mean the bit, of, the thing I'm standing on, Bricktails? So, father, grandfather, great-grandfather, great-great-grandfather, great-great-great-grandfather, possibly. Right. Was the common ancestor. Right. Yeah, this thing that I'm calling an altar. It is possible. But, yeah, it I mean, looks like an altar. It does look especially. See, look, like right over here is the what you were talking about with the five kings with the with the big one in the middle. Oh yeah, yeah, that one there. Right, this is the normal one. Uh, yeah. Oh, one of the kings is covered up. Yeah, they built over the other king. That's weird. Yeah. Who bricked that up definitely the mean, fifth king? <laughs> bricked up the last king. It's definitely one of those. This altar is more important. Yeah. Yeah, old old masonry, new masonry. Yeah, maybe again that reflects a, a, a like a generational uh, corruption, right? 
Yep. Like they had the old building here, and then they were like, no, we need to erect a... Temple. A temple. Temple yeah. to Sauron. Right. And it was done by the Rudaurans, so they put... So they use the Rudaur, you know, they put the Rudaurin marks on the stones. Now it doesn't look, this is a pretty tame altar, right? Yeah, it's kind of boring. It's yeah. functional. Yeah, it's very tame. It doesn't have like, we don't get the, the you know, the sort of icon of Sauron that we've seen in other places. We don't get, the, like in Forest, yeah. we saw it all over the place with all the swords, right? And all the things, um, all, all the eyes. We didn't uh, get... Uh, we don't get like, you know, the, there's no white factory chimney here, uh, you know, with multi, multicolored smoke. We don't get, uh -huh. um, even like a, a little goblin shrine thing. Right. Yeah. No, you can tell they're deluding themselves into thinking this isn't evil at all. Is it? Right. No, we don't that is kind of what it looks like, right? This is, anywhere. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Minimalist restrained evil. Just the two, just the two tasteful iron braziers right yes right. nothing evil nothing nothing yeah. at all quite yeah. ordinary box yeah. now, you think there's anyone in there is that I, a tomb or is... i don't think it is a tomb i don't think it's a, it could i mean i can't absolutely rule it out but the primary reason i don't think it's a tomb where's the stairs here's the stairs is that you know they're like there are tombs right here that look like this right and these are like standard Arnorian tombs, right? We see these. Yeah, but there aren't any altars near those. Right. Well, my point is just, I mean, this is how they do tombs, right? Yes. Um, and we don't have any precedent for a tomb that looks like that. I mean, but we do in Angmar. We do in Angmar. There's stuff that looks like this in Angmar. There's a lot of these little bare sort of phylactery looking boxes up there. Hmm. Well, we'll come back. We'll get back to Angmar someday. And when we do, okay. we'll, 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 we'll look into that. We'll look into that. Yeah. If it, if we could show that even archaeologically speaking, that was an Angmarim influence, that'd be pretty cool, actually. Yeah, yeah. Okay. But I seem to think we were looking at big old stone boxes in Angmar. That were pretty unadorned. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. We'll go. We'll head back there at some point. But, um, but yeah, so, okay, so if, if what we can see through, not just through here, like this particular section, but through this whole area is sort of archaeological evidence of the decline and, and sort of moral decay of the Rudaran people. Mm hmm. That would be interesting. Now, as I'm yep. as I'm recalling, up here in this corner, we're get ooh. What is that? A little keep? A little keep? Oh a big yeah, tower? big watchtower. It looks like the watchtowers we've seen. Oh, but they've bricked it up. No, lame. But an anvil was left here for some reason. Right, because. You never know when you might Anvils. need an anvil. Yeah. You don't want to carry one with you, so. <laughs> yeah, at some around. point, somebody on their journey said, why am I lugging this anvil? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> now this, up here in this corner, in this extreme corner, this is where the big old evil tree is, right? Yeah. 
like the proper proper evil tree. Is he up here? Is is this the way? Am I remembering correctly? Yes, I is think he... so, but I'm not sure. Is he up in here? Is he further in? I'm no, not sure if there's requirements right. to get right. in. This is the guy, Gloom Leaf. That's the guy I'm thinking of. I know yes. there's another oh, even eviler tree. That's what it was. Yeah, there was an instance with an even eviler one. Yeah, but this is the this is the like junior evil tree. Mm-hmm. Whoa! Somebody one shotted him. Somebody one shotted Gloomleaf. Um, Shapers. Yeah. Okay. Gloomleaf. Right. So, but see. Okay. Notice now thematically the things that we have going on here. Right. Think about the. Mm-hmm. What are the primary mob types that we get here in Garth of Garwin? Right. Bog lurkers. Like nature stuff. Nature na- stuff. Corrupted, na- corrupted, corrupted nature. nature. Right, exactly. We get the, we get the, what are they, I, know, the, I was going to call them water spirits. What do we get them? The water, the. Dark water. Spirits? The dark waters. Yes, the dark waters. So we get the dark waters, spirits of sure. water that have Elemental. been corrupted. Right, yeah, yeah. exactly. We get the trees, right, who have been corrupted, including Gloomleaf, right, who has, uh-huh. like, gotten very sad over the years, and the sadness has worked its way into his, into his, into, into the core of his, uh, of his, uh, of his arboreal heart, and, uh, and yeah, trees uh, have hearts, man. He's <laughs> all malicious, absolutely. Um, we have whites, right, so we have yeah. the, the, the sort of, the unquiet, unquiet dead. dead, exactly. So, in other words, you can see like the pattern is like again root hour as it once was and as it has been corrupted and perverted. You have the effect of the, um, you have the literal effect of the unquiet dead right with the whites. Um, you have the trees, which are the symbol of root hour, right? Um, and you know the 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 forest like this was the kingdom of the forest. That's what it mm-hmm. means. Um, and you know, now we have all these twisted and dark trees. And then of course you have the, uh, these guys, the bog, the fell bog prowlers, right? Again, uh-huh. spirits of nature. So you got the spirits of the forest and the spirits of the, uh, you know, the, the, the marshland, right? All of whom uh-huh. have been twisted and corrupted. And then of course the water itself, those bright red dark waters, which, um, yep. uh, certainly reflect the, uh, the the bloody waters which uh are not just about there and, and this is what why i find the red maid story so sort of poignant is that it's it's not just about um the corruption of rudauer right but it's yeah. about the tragedy of the civil wars as a whole right um yeah the, the corruption pe- of the land itself exactly the people of arthodyne played a role in the corruption of the red of the of the the red maid, right? Uh huh. Okay, and now then we're we coming got these here, guys. Right now we got <laughs> the Creoths, which of course makes sense because these are um, these are not. So, what is their relationship here? Um, well, we know they got new flags. We found that out last time. Yes. Yes. These are the, the so this is this, this a Creoth a Creoth novice and a Creoth faithful. Right, I think we get like captains or some such no, novices and faithful still here. Okay. Yeah, this is the just the this is a heightened ability, bad guys. So be on your guard, everyone. Right. 
this is this is an area usually meant for fellowship, so stay together. Who are these guys? Elders. Okay, so these guys are elders. Elders, novices, and faithful. So there is a, a sort of a, a sense of, of a cult identity, right? With these guys? Yes. They look like Hillman tribes. But the name implies there's some sort of uh, fighting for a cause, zealots. Yes, yes, exactly. Um, Maybe crusaders trying to take back their land or something? Well, that's the question, right? So what is the link between the Creoth and the Rudaurans of yore? There's the gloom water. Wretched gloom water. I love that. Well, the link is Angmar, for sure. Sure, yeah. Um, yeah, definitely. Yeah, that one was a novice, so we're still getting these clerical titles. Right. I love how the gloom waters are wretched, right? They can't help it. It's not their, It's not malice, necessarily, right? Uh. It's... Uh, it's going through a bad patch. Yeah. The economy these days. Uh. <laughs> no. Yeah, there's the new shiny new flags here. Right. And it's got the flag of Rudar in color this time. Yes. So maybe implying that these will be the heirs of Rudar's kingdom. Right. Are they the long lost heirs? Or are they just the new heirs? Promised. Chosen yeah. heirs. I think the implication is that they at least consider them, whether they are in truth or not, who knows, but no. um, I think the implication is that they consider themselves the heirs. Uh, given the ties of the thing where it's not unreasonable to think one tribe was maybe close friends with the Rudarn and possibly intermarried. Right, right, exactly. Um, yes. Oh, hello, person selling things. Yes. Oh, I think uh, I, I remember I remember this lady as being one of the vendors I was most happy to see, like ever, playing this game. Still won't repair. Still won't repair your weapons. Yeah, that is annoying. But, but yes, I remember being so vexed having to, like, go all the way back out of here in order to... All the... Yeah, it's like you had to go all the way Man to Oscarus in order to sell something. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. so Cassie... See, see, the thing about the Creoth that's interesting, sort of historically speaking, right? Okay, now we're entering Garth of Garwin proper. Uh-huh. And we've got the banners all over the place. Oh, man, those guys killed me so hard the first time I came here. Yeah, I was not prepared the first time I came. Yeah, no, me neither. They absolutely leveled me. Goodness, these banners are everywhere. Right, so, okay, so, again, the important thing historically to remember is that the Hillmen and the Rudaurans are not identical, right? The the no. the, the, the Rud You've got the two diff very different races. The one Numenorians, right? Um, okay, now we've got leaders and disciples still with the cult titles, right? Mm-hmm. Um, still with the cult titles. Another leader, a warden. That's interesting. Hmm. Um, 
I have failed you. I have you failed red you, Nate. Red Nate. Oh, that's who they're worshiping. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, now we see the heart of the cult, right? Is that they're worshipping the Red Maid herself. Oh, that's really cool. Oh, so that's what the red waves on the banner indicates. Ah, yes. So it's the crown of Rudar set emphatically within the context of the red water of Gartha Garwin. Yep. And therefore the influence of the Red Maid. Oh, that's really cool. That's really yep. cool. I like Look, that a, a new, new Rudar sculpture. Newish. Oh, yeah, it's another one of those imported dude with yes. Palantir Look how and cool I am, statue. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, see, this looks like a step further down the uh, moral evolution, right, of the kings of Rudar. Yeah, now not he's quite holding evil, the sword certainly... And he's holding the sword up, right, like, in, like he's threatening yeah. with it, not just posing mm -hmm. with it. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, anyway, okay, so so you have the Rudarans, who are the Numenorians, and then you have the Hillmen. Now, the Hillmen, remember, we were looking at this when we were in Angmar. We can see that the Hillmen had their own independent culture, but that they were, like, then sort of taken over, dominated by Angmar. Um, yes. You know, and have, and have been enslaved by Angmar, and we saw, you know, ways in which the uh, the, the, you know, when we were looking at the different archaeological layers of, you know, apparent in Angmar, um, seeing the ways, you know, so the kind of complicated relationship back and forth with the fall and rise of Angmar between the Hillman culture and the Angmarim culture. Here in Rudaur, of course, we have three things intermingling, therefore, right? You've got the, the Arnorian tradition of Rudaur. With all uh -huh. the crowns and all the stars still uh, that we can see and scepters, and then we have the Hillman, or the, well, then we have the Angmarim culture. Right, you've got the Witch King, direct influence of the Witch King, um, and the uh, the sort of the dark power of Angmar that is being appealed to by the Rudarans in order to uh, uh, assist their cause. Right, and then you've got the Hillmen in the middle who are allies, but also. You know, this is also the Numenorians joining themselves with lesser men as well. Uh -huh. um, and the Kreoth would seem to be um, uh, would seem to be the uh, the the heirs, possibly of those two. I mean, the, you know, the possibility of like uh, you know intermingling of like intermarriage among them seems to be possible. Uh -huh. uh, yeah, yeah. And the Kreoth being the sort of the result of the, com the, the that combination, their cult-like nature and the um, the extent to which they seem to worship the Red Maid herself, though. Yep. I don't think I ever really processed that before because that is super cool. Me neither. If we see the Red Maid as, in a sense, the effect of the war. Right, she's the effect of the war between uh, Rudar and Arthedain and Cardoan, mm -hmm. and that the heirs or the people who are at least claiming to be the heirs of Rudar and returning to this land, which again, my theory is the original seat of Rudar, um, if they are worshiping the Red Maid, um, it's just it's a really lovely sort of 
in the later days, people not getting it right. You know, she is not only are they not like repenting of the sins of their fathers, they are worshiping the product of the sins of their fathers. You know, they are holding, instead of working to free her, she is herself wretched, right? Like the, like the gloom waters were, uh, she is herself suffering and, and the redness and the, and her malice is a product of her own suffering and her own torture. And instead of wanting to alleviate that torture, they worship her for the power that is derived from that, right? From, uh, you know, they, they worship her in her tormented state. And that's wow. uh, really interesting. Parallel for our times, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, it can be. Um, but anyway, yeah, I, that, I think that, that that seems to me like a really insightful picture into the kinds of things that Tolkien describes with the, the decline, right? The, the decline of, uh, of, of peoples over the years and sort of how, how they go bad and what it looks like when they go bad, if you see what I mean. Yeah. And, and kind of diminish over time. It, it still begs the question, are they actually related to Rudaur or is the, the, the red maid being, you know, unofficially queen of this entire area she's sort of granting them the land as as her faithful right right, exactly like you know you can the faithful will inherit my lands sort of thing you're like the the can we devout and disciples and leaders yeah Uh um yeah the kind of de facto uh like we are the heirs of root hour because they used to live here and now we do kind of thing yeah um i think their claim is more more than that. Yeah, considering they're using Rudolph's cre- Rudarth's crest. So. Yes, exactly. Yeah, the actual crest there. Um, Rudolph the Red Lake, that despot. <laughs> now, I got lost here so many times, uh, and I only yeah. have a general sense do it that again. I'm going in a right direction, but I don't know that I really am. What are we um, looking for? That might help. I don't even know. Are we trying to get out? Or are we trying to go further into we're this? To go, we're trying to go in. I don't know. Where's I want to find the I want to find the the center. Hang on, it's in here. Well, there was oh, an instance further in, but yes, this is what I was yeah, looking for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This yep. is what I was looking. I think I can I think I went all, all the way right. around and came in the back door. But this is what I wanted to see. Guns up, people. There you go. Okay, because we got chieftains and wardens, and then we have Temire the Devoted, who also just got one shot at. But she is the leader <laughs> of the Kree. Dime's on Kree, fire right? tonight. <laughs> is that Dime one shotting things? Dime the oops, I accidentally killed the Balrog one shotting things? Yeah, that's good. Oops, I killed it again. That's awesome. I should have known. Yeah, um, so see, here's the nice kings surrounded by corpses. Uh huh, uh huh, exactly. Is and it just the one of here them? We no, go. There's two. There's three. There's we got three yeah. of the nice kings. So yeah. this place, right? Uh, I mean, there's every. We, we've lost all pretense of this being a, a respectable worship at this point. Yeah, yeah. It's got. Notice the central dais here is just the star of Arnor. We don't yeah. even have any of the 
of trapping the, of the yeah none of the crowns now the crowns are in the the lower the artichoke yeah. well yeah that as the artichoke as well but yeah it's just a just a cool seven point star like that in itself is some sort of you know divine power Right, like focusing on the on the Numenorean roots rather than just uh-huh. sort of shouting root hour, root hour all the time, like so much of the, oh, rest oh, of the oh, architecture. Weird is. pointy metal that comes from a foreign place over here. Wait, where? Where's the, the pointy? For the crow's metal? cage. Oh the crow's yes. Where have I was we seen those little the bars that was making up the? Yeah. Oh, that's Angmarim straight up. Yeah. Just like the fish hooks back in Angmar. Yeah, it looks exactly totally. The, no, the metal's a, not quite as purple, but yeah, no, it's a dead giveaway. Yeah, no, I mean, obviously, like you'd think that the cages with the desiccated corpses in them are kind of a giveaway that it's an Angmarim influence, anyhow. But, um, but yeah, no, that really that really seals it. It's, it's not even. Oh, look, are the bodies being laid at different points of the star, or is that just a coincidence? I don't think they're. Hmm, uh, some of them are. Of them. One, two, three, four. They're all they bring out to the right wagon. of the king statues. Yes. Like just to the right of it. Almost as if... Yeah, this guy breaks up the pattern. Otherwise, there's each. There's one in each... Because uh... there are three, right? Yeah, um, I don't know. No, there's a skeleton, 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 guy, guy, skeleton. Right, no, there's, there's, there's three skeletons and three statues. Uh, yes. I'm pretty sure that's what I'm seeing. It's yeah, almost but... like we've got the... So we've got the three benevolent kings, right? Mm-hmm. And then we yeah. have the three uh, uh, skeleton cages, right? Yeah. Which Cross have been cages, set yeah. in the same pattern as the king statues. So it's almost oh. like... Uh, it's, it's like... it's a sl- It seems to me slightly like sort of shades of... Uh, of you know the crossroads in Ithilien, right? Um, mm-hmm. Like we're gonna take your benevolent king statues and we're gonna um, we're gonna put a like torture cages, you know, right mm-hmm. like seated at the right hand of of all three of those benevolent <sighs> uh, kings. Or yeah, they are seated at the right hand uh, of all of yep. the of the kings of of the old kings of Rudaur. Um, you wonder who they were. Yeah. Yeah, and then of course they have the white factory, which is the one other thing which kind of disrupts the whole pattern. And notice they've put that white factory at the end of the it's at the end of the long point of the star. Yes, right. Um, uh-huh. As if the star of the Valar is pointing now, as if the you know the the you know the light of the Silmaril from Arendel's ship is pointing down at the white factory. Presumptuous. Yeah, which is you know not uh, not yeah. a, not a very wholesome look, certainly. What about this never-ending fire in the middle here? Yeah, well, I don't know what to make of the never-ending fire, honestly. Oh, it's not doing any damage. It's just sort of there. Huh. Having just. Participated in the Mythgard Movie Club discussion of Ryder Haggard's She. That's kind of what it makes me think of the flame of <laughs> eternal life that wells up within the volcano uh, in mm-hmm. She. But 
um, slightly obscure reference. Um, Erekeb points out that they could possibly have found the flame imperishable, but I rather doubt that. Now, look at this portcullis. Yeah. Would you see now this is what you more expect a, to see in a portcullis, right? That's a proper portcullis. All right, a non-decorative, rather clumsy, somewhat askew portcullis. But it, well, it looks like it's gotten the job done a few times. Yeah, exactly. Like it's actually withstood assault. Okay, um, <clears throat> this is the this is the main political instance, right? Not the one with Ivar the Blood Hand, and there's the one with mm-hmm. Ivar the Blood Hand. There's the one with the Red Maid herself. With Red Maid herself, there's and one with the one tree. With the tree, yeah, and one with just basically sacking the hillman. I think is. And that's it? what this is. This one is right. I don't know. I don't remember. I think so. All right, I'm gonna go in. I'll be just. Uh, the ruins of an ancient fortress of Rudauer now overrun by corrupted nature and a vile necromantic power out of Angmar. Or is it, oh, this is the Red Maid one? Yeah, okay. this is proper Red Maid. We okay. might want to form a team for that one. Well, maybe I can just explore. I mean, you guys are welcome to form a team. So, <laughs> hang on a second. Where's the, where's the, where's the instance finder? What's the keyboard command for the instance, the default keyboard command for the instance finder? Oh, I just plugged it in. Uh, should be on your main um, no, dashboard. Not, oh. um, it's three people and a ghost behind them. The little right. icon. Uh, social. Aha. Oh, yeah, that one. Okay, right. Don't Got look it. at me to save your bacon tonight, Professor. I don't have a tune on Gladden to help. No worries. Not a problem. Uh-huh. But Lori's got gotcha. Besides, I'm like, what, 30, 60 levels over? I can probably... You you will want to scale it down? I want to scale it down? I think it's set at 32. I think it's set at 32. Well, yeah, I'll scale it down. Okay, hang on a second. You want to follow with me, though? These are non-scaling. These don't scale. Yeah. So it's the fortress. The fortress is the one I'm looking for, right? Yeah, and... This one is called what? Yeah, Fortress. Yeah, it's non-scaling. Wait, this one here is called Fortress? Yeah. Okay. Well, it's just going I'm just going to go All right, that you... one. At level, at level 32. Yeah, it's fine. Yeah. Okay, let's see. Um... Do people want to do people want to form a six man? I mean, we're going to be massively overpowered for a six man. I was just going to kind of cruise through it and ignore most everybody. (laughs) I'm just going to look at architecture. All right. I don't really need to fight the Red Maid and and finish the instance. I just want to look around. The ruins of an ancient fortress of Rudar. Now overrun by corrupted nature and a vile necromantic power out of Angmar, okay. the most terrible power still remains to be confronted. Okay, so right, we're keeping it up. I guess. I don't really want to fight people. Yeah, you're going to kill me. Yeah, they're going to rush at you anyway. Okay, well, I was kind of hoping they'd ignore me. I just wanted to test that. Not in an instance. 
Not in an instance. Oh, well. Well. This might take a while anyway, just from the sheer volume of people. Yeah. Yeah, it's just a test. Well, see, here's where because, I... Here, yeah. here's where I want to, where I want to, like, I wish I could just stealth and go through. <laughs> you know, you're not a burglar this time. I know. We're, we're on Landreval next week. I mean, that's ideal. Let's try to just go, come back with Grifflet and go through here. Yeah. yeah totally. No, I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to, even if I <laughs> could make it and I'm, I, I have no equipment of any kind. Um, uh-huh. So, Yeah. I'm not really prepared to actually fight my way through an instance. I just mostly wanted to look <laughs> around anyway. Well, maybe, uh, maybe we can, it's getting late. Um, yeah. Maybe, well, the other things with the, with the six man, you'd at least kill everybody faster and be able to get to look at things faster. Exactly. So maybe next week we'll form up a, a, a super overpowered six man. <laughs> and just like power run because i i'd like to do this one yeah because this is the gravity core. has an idea yeah he says you need someone to finish the instance before you and then invite you in for a tour when it's empty oh that's cunning gravity that's very wow cunning. he's a smart man yeah 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 um yeah that'd be a way to do it that would be cool that would be cool um yeah if somebody could like uh empty out this instance during the, um, you know, dur like during the class part, so that as soon as we're done and it's time for, yeah, sorry, I'm like not even fighting here. <laughs> That's all right. My wings will kill you. No, no, you killed me first. My wings will avenge me. Um, okay, yeah, yeah. All right, let's um, uh. Let's do that. Let's do that. Okay, so so I'll, we'll come and I'll look around here next week briefly, and then, uh, well, I mean not necessarily briefly, but I won't do all the combat, <clears throat> and then and the other two I don't really think I need to look at. I, I mean the barrows are kind of interesting. Maybe we could look at the barrows actually. Wouldn't <sighs> wouldn't mind looking at the barrows. Come to think okay. of it, uh, that's cool. So we'll look at the barrows. We'll look at this. And then we should be done with Garth and Garwin. And indeed, we should really be done with all of the Lone Lands except for the last bridge, which we're probably not going to get to, but we'll get close to next time. Actually. <laughs> um, okay. I, I have confidence. Cool. So we'll plan to do that. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back out of the instance here. All right. So we'll plan to do that. We'll, we'll do the, maybe we'll end up spending the whole time in those two instances next time. But if not, we can move on to uh, go over towards the last bridge, um, uh, and then we'll hang. We'll if we don't get to go into the troll shots, we'll head back up to uh, uh, to Angmar. But I think we're we're gonna we're actually not bad. We've that <laughs> we've we've explored almost every square foot of the Lone Lands and done a complete archaeological survey of the ruins of the Lone Lands. While we discussed the encounter at Weathertop, essentially. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, anyway, cool. It's been a good good night. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. And so now we'll head into the... Uh, and then, of course, we'll have all of the troll shaws to be exploring while they're traveling through the troll shaws. So, 
who knows? Mm. We may be able to keep it up all the way to Rivendell. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, uh, I, 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 let's see. Uh, Borijida uh, was just asking, do the art devs of the game love my analysis? You know, I don't know if I've... I've never talked to them about it. I I mean I've I've done a little bit of it with them and I can tell that they humor me when I do. Um <laughs> I kind of feel like I'm being humored, but it's okay. It's like, you know, like don't make any sudden moves and you might not spring. Um but uh uh but I don't know. I mean, I, 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 I've never really asked them. I, I don't, it's, I'm, I'm not, I've never really subjected them to one of these sessions, so I don't really Gosh, know. Gosh, I hope they like it. Like if they watch or, or something, but, um, yeah. Um, but I, I do know, know they like you. Well, yeah, exactly. They don't, they don't hate me personally. So I guess that's a good sign. That's really, that's really kind of all I can ask for, I guess. Um, <laughs> all right. So we're going to sign off here. Thanks everybody. And uh, we'll see you guys next week. So we'll finish this up. Uh, we'll, do, we'll do the instances next week and then off probably towards the troll show. So thanks everybody for joining us and I will see you guys next week. Bye now. All right. Good night. Night. Thanks for joining me on this epic exploration of the Lord of the Rings and of Standing Stone's video adaptation of Tolkien's story. If you are having even half the fun I'm having on this journey, I hope you will consider supporting the project by donating at signumuniversity.org fund.